Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for the books that came out on December 26, 2023, day after Christmas, our last spotlight of the year. Uh, apologies for just coming out a couple days late. I, I'm on the road visiting family. Uh, just with the holidays, it was hard for Rocky and I to get together to, uh, to record this, but we wanted to be sure to get it out. There's a ton of books, including one that's not even on this picture that we thought was going to come out last week and then turns out came out this week. We didn't review it last week. We'll mention it here. It's Cyborg number six, the end of the series. We wanted to be sure to mention it because I thought Morgan Hampton did a pretty great job. But yeah, a big week, which is so strange to have such a giant week to end the year. Um, but I guess par for the course for DC, you know, we've talked recently uh, about how they really need to balance out their schedule. Um, but anyway, it was a great Christmas at my household, Rocky. How was it for you? It was a really good uh, Christmas. Uh, it was really good. It was really good. I got my uh, got my workout bench. It's all good. You know, I spent uh, I spent all year you know working out in my basement in the early mornings. Now my wife finally decides to. She finally caught on. It was an easy gift. For, it was an easy buy for me for Christmas. So, you know, uh, you know, yeah, it's all good. I and I, I enjoy, I've, I've had fun this past week and family and friends. And I just I put up my top ten uh, or my top most disappointing DC titles, but I, 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 a general comment on DC uh, that I did my top 25 DC. And the reason why I did top 25 DC titles and not top 10 is that I thought DC, DC actually had a really good year this year. Because when I went, when I went through the titles, particularly when I reviewed, I quickly overviewed all our, we, of course we review comics every week, all DC. There was actually a lot of TC titles that I liked this year. And I, and in particular, there was ones that consistently made both years in mind uh, top picks of the week or back and forth anyway, and, uh, or at least were contenders for it. And it was, I had a lot of fun putting it together. And uh, yeah, so I encourage people to check that out uh, if, uh, if they're not otherwise inclined to uh, check out this week's, you know, check out, because DC had some good titles in 2023. And I, I, I'm really hopeful that 2024, they'll carry that, mo uh, the momentum forward. Yeah, I feel like the quality for DC has definitely been higher than the, the quality for Marvel lately. Um, and there's fantastic independent books uh, that have been coming out for the last couple of years. Um, so, yeah, definitely uh, agree with you there. So let's go ahead and get started. We'll kick it off. First book we're going to talk about in detail, The Sandman Universe Nightmare Country, The Glass House, which is just a, a mouthful. Uh, but it's issue number six. It's the final issue of the second of what's going to be three titles that uh, deal with these characters. It's written by James Tynan. Lissandro Esterin is the artist. Patricio Del Pesce on colors. Simon Bolin on letters. Now, we've both been a pretty big fan of this series uh, throughout its run. I will say, I, don't, uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this final issue is a letdown, um, but it felt a little bit anti- Sandman show up. You know, this is a book that's set in the, the Sandman and, uh, you know, very beloved properties. And it's where we first saw characters like the Corinthian, for example. Uh, what Tynan has done, he's been very additive in adding characters like Flynn and uh, Mr. Agony and Mr. Ecstasy and, and these others. Uh, it's still a mystery who the sort of big bad is pulling the strings. We get some hints of, uh, of who might be behind it here. But the big takeaway for me in this issue was, yeah, Morpheus shows up and he's kind of like, all right, let's stop all the nonsense that's going on. Uh, let's, let's, you know, uh, 
I'm not going to let Flynn back into the real world. I know she was supposed to be investigating who was behind everything along with the Corinthian. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, I'm pulling the plug on all that. And it's kind of like, okay, everybody's been messing around since the beginning of the, the first Nightmare Country title. Uh, you know, kind of like the cats away, the mice will play. Everybody's been messing around, doing things that they know that Morpheus probably wouldn't approve of. But all of a sudden in this issue, it's like, okay, daddy's home. He's putting his foot down. You got to follow the rules. Uh, and what's interesting is it may be that the Corinthian and Flynn, they don't necessarily want to follow the along with Thessaly as well, uh, the witch. They want to know who's behind it. They want s some semblance of justice or revenge or, um, or vengeance, however you want to put it. Um, so I suppose that's what we're going to see in the uh, third and final series that, that wraps this up. But it's been, it's been a good title, um, verging on a, a really good title. But for me, that this ending felt a little bit more like uh, an interlude, if you will. Like it's, it seemed like we were building to something, and all of a sudden Morpheus shows up. And don't get me wrong, it was great to see him. Um, but all of a sudden it felt like the momentum was sort of stopped. Okay, hold on, do a bit of a reset. And then I imagine things will ramp back up in the final series. So, you know, not to say this wasn't an entertaining series, but it ends up with the way the final issue of the series is, it ends up feeling a little bit more like setup than actual payoff. And I'm expecting the payoff in the third and final series. Uh, the art by uh, Lissandro Esterin is, is fantastic as it's been throughout, really captures the tone and the feel of this horrific story that Tynan's telling. Uh, what do you think, Rocky? Yeah, that was, I, I'm a little bit, uh, I've been enjoying this too. You and I have both been enjoying this series. I think the, I wish the art was, a, the art I've, I've got accustomed to the uh, stylistic art of, um, uh, of uh, Lissandro uh, Esserin, uh, but uh, it's still, I wish it was, yeah, it's, it's stylistic, still a little off for me, but it works because it, because this is a dream world and it's sort of ephemeral and it's eclectic and it's a little bit out there and you're dealing with the machinations of the more nefarious forces of the endless and they, and dream, of course, Morpheus is the most, he's the Sandman and he's the most powerful of them all. And they're always vying for power here. And the way that they utilize, you know, uh, Teague was sort of like the, the, the corporate head honcho who's in league sort of with the embodiment of, of the the devil and and Flynn has a uh, Flynn is made sort of like almost like the gatekeeper of the Corinthian. The Corinthian can't kill anybody unless the uh, Madison, who's now a cat, can has can approve it. And last issue ended kind of on a cliffhanger because Corinthian sort of uh, Corinthian in order to attract Sandman basically uh, intentionally tried to kill someone, knowing it would attract Sandman because he never had Flynn's permission, and that sort of draws Sandman out and uh, forces his hand a bit. And, but, but the, the ending here is it's on the one hand, it's unsatisfying to me. On the other hand, I think it's intended to be unsatisfying because the bad guys are still at play. Sandman thinks he's, he's sort of banished them off and dealt with them, but he, they haven't, they've just been sidelined. Uh, even the corporate, uh, even the corporate, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy devil worshiper, Teague, even he is uh, is someone who is ends up in league, ends up being found by uh, Mr. Agony and Mr. Ecstasy at the end. So all Sandman did, frustratingly, is he's all he's done is he's he's messed up the chess pieces on the board, but the game is still afoot. 
And and it's kind of frustrating. And so Sandman didn't really strike me as particularly bright. He's always so arrogant. He's blinded by his own. He thinks he's so intelligent. He's so blindly narcissistic, I think, at times that he he sort of fancies himself being this master of knowing what everyone's doing. And and I don't think he sees the big picture all the time. And I think that's what uh, Flynn knows. And uh, and I think other players in particular, uh, Thessaly, the, the witch involved, I think she knows that as well. And it pisses her off. She's the only one that really gets really pissed off at uh, at Sandman, other than the Corinthians. So, so, but I like all this. This is all intentional. I, uh, Tinian knows these characters. It's there's a lot of moving parts here, and I'm really curious to see how he wraps this up in the third act in 2024. But um, it's, it, yeah, it's a good it's a good point you make um, about it being in, uh, intentional, and yeah. I, the arrogance of San, of Sandman of Morpheus, it, you know, like going back to what I was saying, he it's like daddy's home and he, he just assumes that because he's so powerful and he can force everybody to do what he says, that he doesn't have to force everybody to do what he says. He thinks he can just say it and they're going to obey. And that might have been the that might have been the case at one point. But you think you would have learned his his lesson because it's not always the case. There's been plenty of times where the endless has, have had all sorts of infighting and, and what have you. So. I guess he's just not used to humans um, or, you know, lesser demons disobeying him. So, yeah, when you have the guys like Teague or Agony and Ecstasy, Thessaly, that are going to, you know, continue to do what they want to do. Um, you know, like you said, even Flynn uh, and Corinthian, you know, that, like I've said, they, he's like, okay, investigation over. They're not willing to let it lie. They want their, their pound of flesh, as it were. So, interesting. We'll see uh, how it continues in, uh, in 2024. When they announced the new series. Uh, up next, we have Batman Santa Claus Silent Night, issue number four, written by Jeff Parker. Art by Danny Kim and Steven Segovia, colored by Alex Sinclair, lettered by Pat Brosso. I'll talk about the art first. The art's okay. Um, I, I probably wouldn't even have anything negative to say about the art uh, if it wasn't for the fact that we had amazing art by Michelle Bandini to start the series. That art is more dynamic than what we see here. It's not that this art is bad. It's just a different style. Um, and so, you know, by by comparison, this art feels, uh, I don't want to say worse, but it just, it feels different. It doesn't have the same kind of dynamic energy um, that, uh, that we had previously. Um, so that, to me, that's just a little bit disappointing. Um, I think DC could have done a better job. I, th I think I talked about it before. Like if you knew this was going to take as long as it took, you knew it was going to be a monthly series. You probably should have had Michelle Bandini working on this. I don't know, starting like in July to give yourself plenty of time to get it done. Um, but the story itself was a lot of fun, you know, dealing with the, a lot of the, the um, Norse myths about Santa Claus and, and Crump, uh, Krumpus and seeing the heroes interact with who Santa Claus is Um and it's that that play between the two that really is my favorite that Jeff Parker really nails. Um, so it's still there's still this um, this feeling of Santa Claus as, as a myth, as a legendary figure who still goes and delivers toys. <clears throat> but at the end, even Robin says, well, with the way the world is now, there's no way you can get everywhere in one night. Uh, why do you do it? And he's like, you know, there's he gives a couple of reasons. Um and, you know, the one that, that Superman gives is the best. You know, if you can help, you should. So it's this idea that, 
yeah, Santa Claus does still exist. He doesn't get to every house anymore, but he goes out and he does what he can. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed the interactions. It was it was uh, consistent throughout where heroes would get a chance to meet Santa Claus and they would be sort of um, starstruck, I guess is the word. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Christmas, uh, as you can tell, with, between the 12 days of the comic source and everything that we do for the holiday season. And my house has more trees than you can count. I think we're up to six or seven full-size trees now. So anyway, I'm a big fan of Christmas, love Christmas. I love all these Santa Claus covers that DC's been putting out. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I think this was just a really fun series. And, and like we said in the past about the series, Rocky, a, a gateway book, right? That somebody who's interested in collecting DC comics can pick up. They can see some of the characters. They can kind of get familiar. It's doesn't tie into anything else. It's not tie into any event. Don't need to know anything else that's going on in the DC universe as far as what happened in Gotham War or maybe what's going on over the Justice Society or uh, Beast War or Beast World or any of that stuff. Uh, you can just pick this up and read it and have a heck of a lot of fun. And uh, there's some fantastic covers for this particular final issue uh, as well. So uh, the only nitpick I have, I mentioned it previously, they should have done this early. They should have started this one week earlier so they could have released the trade paperback today or, you know, as we're uh, talking about the books that came out on the 26th. They could have released the trade the day after Christmas would have been a great uh, gift um, or possibly uh, if you get, you know, there's any kids out there that got like a gift card or a gift certificate for their local comic shop, how great would it have been to go in the next day and pick this up, right, and enjoy a little more holiday spirit. So uh, anyway, what did you think of the ending? I thought it was really good. I, I One of the uh, central conceits of this entire series is how it just it very understandably and masterfully utilizes many of the heroes of the DC universe. And uh, that's not something – I don't always assume that editorial knows what they're doing. I don't, I don't say that <laughs> – I say that with a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but they, they knew what they were doing here. Uh, we, we get we, just that a wonderfully eclectic array of DC heroes from Superman, Batman to Black Canary to Blue Beetle. Uh, I love the use of Blue Beetle in this issue, uh, even Damien. E even the use – the clever use of the Phantom Zone, you know, the because the old enemies of St. Nick way back when, thousands of years ago, were actually ended up in the Phantom Zone. So it makes sense why they're corrupted. It makes sense how they sort of can manifest themselves and they gain influence over Krampus, sort of like the the, 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 the pet sort of partner of Santa of, – of, of, Santa Claus and and just how they were able to manipulate him because Krampus was basically, you know, he's minded. So the force is quite easy to be used on him by these phantom zone, uh, these creatures. And just uh, uh, even at the end when uh, Damien has to pretend, how would a young boy, how did how did the children in the children's novel, Christmas novel that Satana had, how do they, how do those children act? Damien says to himself as he's captured by, uh, by the villain. And he says, well, so he begins to cry like a child does, you know. <laughs> and of course, Santa can hear children cry, the cries of children through the trees and that's how saint nick finds damien and can locate him and and so the, it was a, sort of a nice clever use of of sort of clearly made up fabricated santa claus lore and mythology but actually 
possessing a degree of verisimilitude given the crazy comic book science of the DC universe. And I really appreciate that, especially as a DC fan. And as you, as you said, uh, I, I share your sentiment about too bad this trade can't come out for this Christmas, but this is something that's timeless. This is a timeless tale for at least for at least the next five to 10 years to come, I would imagine. Uh, so for, for next Christmas and for future Christmases, this will always be a good present for uh, DC fans moving forward to, to new readers. Yeah, good point. Uh, okay, up next we have Amazon's Attack Number Three. This is from writer Josie Campbell. Vasco Gregov is the artist. Alex Guermas on colors. Becca Carey on letters. We saw last time, or actually, I guess two issues ago, we've got uh, Mary Marvel along with Queen Nubia, along with uh, Yara Floor, um, and I, I think there's a couple other Amazons. Um, Faruka. And I, I want to say there's one more, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But anyway, yeah. um, is it IO maybe that's there with them? Anyway, um, you know, they are trying to get to the root of who is pulling the strings behind the um, kind of the world's attack on, on Amazons, right? Like they know about the incident in Montana. They know what the world governments have decided. They know about the Amazon Extradition uh, Act, but they – they realize that there's somebody behind the scenes who's pulling the strings and they're trying to figure out who it is. They don't necessarily have a beat on the sovereign yet, but with these golden apples that sow discord and chaos, that leads them down the path to uh, to thinking it's the goddess Eris. In this issue, they find out that perhaps a, a temple to Eris has been un unearthed in Greece and that's allowing her to manifest powers again and um, distribute these golden apples that cause chaos around the world. When they go to Greece, they find out that even back in the day, no one really worshiped Eris uh, because nobody really liked her. Uh, so she doesn't have any temples. And so the mystery starts to, to deepen and they haven't been able to figure out exactly who's pulling the strings yet. So it's a little bit of a transitional issue. We do see Mary Marvel go and talk to Whoever was her um, Dr. antagonist. Dr. Georgia Savannah. Dr. Georgina Savannah. Yeah, yeah. Georgia Savannah, <laughs> uh, who apparently is a sister of, of Dr. Savannah that people will know from Shazam, Captain Marvel, way back in the day. Uh, this was the person that was behind everything that happened in the, the new Shazam series that Josie Campbell wrote. So it's nice to have that tie in as well. Um, I, I don't, I mean, we've, we've talked about the success of uh, having. Mary Marvel get her powers from um, Olympian gods, if you will, rather than where they supposedly were coming from before with uh, with Billy sharing his powers. Yeah. We can argue whether or not that works or not. Her as this Amazonian champion. The Amazons sure were kind of surprised to learn that in, in the first issue. So this is working for me on, on various levels. Is it perfect? No. Is it interesting? Yeah, kind of. Is the art any good? The art is fantastic. I'm, I'm a big fan of Vasco Gregoff's uh, art. It's been so good uh, every time I've seen it. So for the, on that level, it's working. On the level of making the Amazons interesting by having these three tribes and then uniting them and then sort of political aspect and, and Nubia's leadership of the Amazons, well, that's worked to a lesser extent. Uh, I like the idea of it in theory in, in execution and, and in potential for story, it's a little more problematic. I mean, Rocky and I have talked before about 
needing that that drama when it comes to the Amazons. But at the same time, it's like, I don't want drama that's just bickering back and forth like we got in Trial of the Amazons. We get a little bit of bickering here, but but not a lot. So at least Josie Campbell is um, is doing a better job uh, of, of giving us sort of outside motivation for drama. But the other aspect of this is Nubia just I understand, you know, DC wanted to diversify. They wanted to replace Hippolyta with somebody, you know, of color, you know, new character, more potential for story. But she has not come across as anything other than incompetent in her leadership of the Amazon. So I I was a bigger fan of Nubia when she first debuted and and we saw that potential. But like objectively, when I look at the job Nubia has done as as leader of, you know, supposedly three united tribes – that can't seem to agree on anything, even though they're united, like her leadership has left a lot to be desired. Um, and, and, you know, you could make the argument, well, you know, these things are kind of, you know, out of her hands or they're above her. Or she doesn't know what's going on. It's lack of knowledge. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you're the leader. You're the one that has to, you know, solve these problems. And, and maybe it's just that we didn't get that many Hippolyta storylines or, or we got them spread out over a longer period of time. So it's harder to um, to critique her reign as as queen of the Amazons in a negative light because she had so many years of like peace and prosperity or what have you. But all I can go on is is by what DC's telling me, right? Like when we were reviewing Gotham War, we we're talking about the crime statistics, and I kept saying we got to go by what they're telling us or what they're showing us. And I'm just going by what DC has shown and told us about the the reign of Nubia, for lack of a better way to put it. Her reign has been marked by a lot of tumult, a lot of dysfunction, and and lack of leadership. Like she's gone out several times into quote unquote man's world to try to make things better, and it kind of seems like all she's done is make is make things worse. So, like if I'm an Amazon, I'm like, can we get Hippolyta back to lead us? Because you know, it's like when you elect a bat, you know, somebody president and they do a terrible job. They're not going to stay in power. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I hate to like just beat up on Nubia, but and, and you know, maybe it's just what DC wants. They want a lot of chaos and upheaval with the Amazons right now. Maybe it helps to put a light on what Tom King is doing and and help sales numbers for that. But I sort of feel bad for the Amazons. Like they can't catch a break. Nubia has not in any way, shape or form, been a good, been a good leader. Uh, I'm sorry. She just hasn't. So anyway, what do you think, Rocky? Uh, Well, I I just, uh, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'll I'll defend Nubia in one respect. And that is the fact that uh, DC wanted to give Nubia some, some status. And, uh, and, and so they made her queen. The problem is that they made her queen. Now, why is that a boring role? Because Hippolyta was actually always kind of a boring character. She just was. And by the way, in the original Amazon's attack, I think I think Hippolyta was a terrible leader. I, I think there are storylines. I, I, but but in fairness, I've always traditionally thought that Wonder Woman has been, generally speaking, not a particularly well-written title for the most part. I, I, I know I'm going to get maybe – but that's just the truth. I, I thought Hippolyta has always been sort of they, – they, they never know what to do with Hippolyta because she used to be Wonder Woman at one point in the JSA in one iteration and then she had nothing to do and now they, they made her queen. The problem is that when you're queen, you're, you govern. You know, 
the president doesn't doesn't join the army when they invade Iraq. Okay, the president stays in the White House. A queen doesn't do go into battle. Not really. I mean, she's not really supposed to do that. And even here, it feels a little bit odd that the queen she should be in, on Themyscira uh, governing. She should be doing her job, and she's not. Uh, now, in fairness, she was invited to the White House, and then an assassination was made on her life. So Josie Campbell, in fairness to Josie Campbell, I think she did the best she could to justify why Queen Nubia is out on the battle lines here because she was sort of sucked in and manipulated. Now, one, one of my uh, – I don't know if this is a criticism or just an observation maybe, but it's interesting that in, in the Wonder Woman title with Tom King, the sovereign is the bad guy. And then here in Amazon's attack, it's suggesting that it's a woman who's the bad person. Like, there's, there, they say the word she. They say she, somebody, she needed, we don't know who the bad guy is, she needed, uh, let me backtrack, Dr. Georgina, Dr. Georgia Savannah, when speaking to Mary Marvel, says about her, the person behind all this, she needed the apples, she needed people to carry the apples of discord to full effect to help see the the to see the discontent against the amazons well who's she is it cersei is it uh doctor i think she is i think she is heiress but oh, i think that she I thinks think that, oh she thinks it's heiress well, you, no, well i think, I think it might it be misdirection heiress, but 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 i don't know it's not like we know as readers that there's somebody uh, you know other like heiress to me she was a puppet she was used by whoever is behind it. You know, we see at the end of the issue that Eris has been uh, crucified. And, uh, you know, that's what leads them to realize that there's somebody else behind it. So I think Eris was was being used. And then when they were done using whoever it is, male or female, whoever the big boss is, when they were done well, manipulating Eris, they killed her. Well. Uh, that may be true, except that at the end of the conversation between Mary Marvel and uh, Savannah, Mary Marvel says to her, you and Eris won't get away with this. Savannah says to her specifically, me and question mark. Ha ha ha. Wow. I thought you had this figured out. I guess that's why I'm the teacher and you're the student. So I think that Savannah knows it isn't Eris because I think Savannah knows that Eris is probably dead. That's what I think. But maybe I'm reading that wrong. So I think that there's some misdirection going on here because as you said, as you pointed out at the end of this issue, Eris is, is, has been killed. Somebody's killed the, the goddess of chaos. Well, okay. Now who has the power to do that? Well, that's the big question. Does the, the you know, if the sovereign is the one manipulating things behind the scenes, uh, and we know that we believe that the sovereign is, who is the sovereign teamed up with that has the type of power to be able to kill, uh, uh, Eris. That's, that's what's interesting here. And I want to, you know, Josie Campbell, I, I hope she seems to be working better with, she seems to be working relatively well with Tom King, even though it's not really a direct tie in to the main Wonder Woman title. I think it, I think it kind of works because we're getting a lot of maybe some of the, I like that we're filling in the blanks because I didn't quite, I don't really buy into the whole sovereign is manipulating the entire planet. It, we need more substance. I like to see that, okay, we have other mythological forces manipulating the minds of the world. We have the apples of discord. We have a, maybe a, a dead goddess of chaos. We've got somebody else more powerful than them. You know, the, the plot thickens and I kind of like that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm sticking on board here because I'm, I'm fe I've got mixed feelings about Tom King's Wonder Woman run. This actually is a, is a, 
is a series that I think sort of piques my interest and keeps me more invested in the main series proper as well as this one. So, you know, it, there's that at least. Yeah, again, it's just it's so hard to tell and, and doesn't matter. And uh, I mean, because when you talk about apples of discord, yeah, I mean, and they say she, you got to think Eris. So it, maybe, I mean, is Savannah referring to two different people? Is it the same person? I mean, I, I guess we'll wait and see. And, and you know, I, it, it does sort of um, it's sort of a backhanded compliment for the series that we're not sure who it, it is mysterious and we're engaged enough to, to want to know who it is. So um, there is that. But but really, the best part about the series, honestly, is uh, is the art. Uh, I think Vasco Gregov does a fantastic job. So. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Alan Scott and Green Lantern. We're up to issue number three. <laughs> this is from writer Tim Sheridan. Cian Tormey on art. Matt Herms and Chris Sotomayor handle the colors. Lucas Catoni on letters. Uh, we get to see Alan Scott team up with um, with the Spectre in this one. And we finally get our answer on who the, the Red Lantern is and what really happened to to Johnny Ladd. So it's what we suspected. I, I think both of us mentioned it at one point. I know I, I definitely did. Uh, so the Red Lantern is Johnny Ladd. Uh, you know, no surprise there, even though it comes as a big surprise to Alan Scott. However, the part that, that might come as a surprise to, to some uh, and wasn't really hinted at until this issue is that Johnny Ladd wasn't his real name. He was actually a Russian spy. Uh, and we get to see his daughter in the pages of Justice Society this week that we'll talk about uh, as well. So um, a big wake-up call for Alan Scott once he starts to put the pieces together. And on the other aspect of it, as far as, you know, kind of historical perspective and um, homosexuals being persecuted and what have you, uh, you know, it's, uh, as Rocky and I have both said, it's a sensitive subject, but a subject that, uh, that probably needs to be talked about or, or should be talked about. Um, that aspect of the story is still coming across as, as very poignant and very traumatic for, um, those men and young boys who were kind of subjected to the trauma of society at the time called deviance jailed, criminalized, um, you know, generally just treated very, very poorly. So, uh, you know, it does offer a little bit of hope that we've, we've come so far, uh, but yet at the same time, so far to go. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of positive, a little bit of negative from, from that aspect. But in terms of like technically putting together a comic, it continues to be, you know, very well done by Tim Sheridan, very well paced. The dialogue is sharp and uh, emotional when it needs to be. The art by C. and Tormi is fantastic. Gorgeous colors. Um, I, I just, I can't say enough about setting the, the tone of the story um, through the line work and the colors. So C. and Tormi, Matt Herms, and Chris Sotomayor, because it, it's a delicate balance, right? I and mean, we're talking about golden age characters. We're talking about events that happened back in the 40s. So you sort of need that primary palette. I talk about it all the time. When you want to evoke that golden age feel, that classic superhero feel, you want that primary palette. But, you know, as we've said throughout, when we've discussed the previous issues, these are sort of 
real world subjects and themes that we're dealing with here, you know, uh, persecution of um, people's gender identities and, and sexual preferences and, and that sort of thing. And the, the trauma and things that they were subjected to, uh, I mean, torture, I mean, let's call it what it is, right? Just like tortured in those mental institutions and what have you, those asylums or sanitariums or whatever they wanted to call them. Um, so these are, these are adult themes. These are mature um, talking points. And that's a delicate balance to, uh, to strike, you know, both artistically with your transitions from panel to panel and body language and emotion and faces, and certainly with the colors, right? Because you do want it to be primary. You want it to feel like a superhero book because at the end of the day, this is still had been a, kind of a superhero who done it. <clears throat> now we know who done it. It's the Red Lantern. We know who the Red Lantern is now. What's the resolution between Alan Scott and his former lover who, you know, clearly was lying to him? That's what is still to come. But balancing that superhero aspect of the story, balancing Red Lantern versus Green Lantern, you know, Red Lantern being a, a character that supposedly has had been around since the Golden Age and all of us had just forgotten, you know, it had been removed by, uh, I can't even remember who, who was the villain in the the Lost Children, whoever that, that female villain was that stole all the children and took all these characters out of time. Oh, or child, you... child finder, child minder. Yeah. Yeah. Ch child minder. I think it was yeah. child. Minder, yeah. 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 So supposedly the, the red lantern and green lantern, th these have been nemeses for a long time. We had, we're just, we had just forgotten, right. Kind of like uh Jay Garrick flash and Dr. Alchemy. Um, so how this all plays out, how it all wraps up, we'll have to wait and see. Um, we also know that Jeff Johns is, is finishing up, with DC moving on to focus on his Ghost Machine stuff, his Ghost Machine uh, imprint at uh, at, DC, or at Image Comics specifically and exclusively. So will this continue? Will Will Justice Society continue? Will it continue to tie in with these other miniseries like Sandman, like Jay Garrick Flash, like Alan Scott Green Lantern? We'll have to wait and see. But I hope I hope even without Jeff Johns there, kind of steering the ship, <clears throat> what Jeremy Adams has done what Tim Sheridan is doing here, what Robert Venditti is doing in uh, the Sandman series, the Wesley Dodd Sandman series. Th these guys got it. <laughs> these guys got it, right? I'm a fan of Jeff, but he wants to go and do his own thing. I totally applaud that, support that. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, DC. Keep, keep this corner of DC going because the quality of the stories are there and Alan Scott Green Lantern issue number three just backs that up a hundred percent. So uh, what did you think of this issue, Rock? I, I actually, the, the part that actually I thought was sort of very clever and I, I respected that Tim Sheridan did that was actually the inclusion of the specter because one of the aspects of the specter that is at times talked about. And uh, the last time I saw a really good specter story was, uh, Ah, I, it's unimportant. Suffice to say that the specter has always been, in my mind, the embodiment of the of the Ju Judeo-Christian ethic. He's the spirit of vengeance. And what I thought was interesting here was the way Tim Sheridan scripted the specter. And he's got to do it in a very careful way, because if you if you look at this, if if the specter is someone that punishes criminals back in the 1940s, homosexuals were considered criminals. So you got to ask yourself, why doesn't the specter punish? I mean, it's an open question. 
and this is where it gets touchy. This is where this storyline can get touchy. Why is the Spectre working with Alan Scott? Particularly at the beginning of this issue, Alan Scott is on the dock where homosexuals hang out and meet each other. And one even looks like he's soliciting, like there's, you can go down there and you could probably pay for sex. I mean, because the one guy actually says to him, uh, Scotty, right? Uh, yeah, looking for someone, aren't we all? Uh, but we either got to be quick or head to your place because the blues are out in force. I mean, that sounds like a male prostitute. And Alan Scott admits that he basically was meeting, he, he regularly met with guys down on the docks. And so Alan Scott very clearly has had a string of sexual partners and every partner he's had, who he's had uh, a fling with or any kind of affair with, has been killed by this Red Lantern, who we now, it, it's discovered is actually his original lover. Why is this Red Lantern killing all his former lovers? Is he jealous? Is he what? Like, what's going on here? So it's interesting that, that uh, and Alan Scott is still dealing with his sexuality. He still thinks maybe there's something, there's still a remnant of him that he's got some, he's harboring some sense of guilt. There's a great conversation between him and uh, Jay Garrick, where he gets very defensive with Jay Garrick and Jay can sense it because clearly Jay knows uh, Alan's, uh, his friend's sexuality. And he's just, you know, he's, he's just, Alan wants to handle this case himself and the JSA, you know, Jay Garrick's trying to make it clear to him, look, we'll help you too. If no one else is going to look into this because of the nature of it being gay man dying, because no one cares about that. And, you know, uh, that, that will help you out. Also, Tim Sheridan was also very careful in the script to make it clear that, you know, that Alan Scott is not blaming the police department. He doesn't blame the police department for doing sting operations against the, the gay community in that area because that's what the law is and they're just doing their job. And so Tim Sheridan, because there's a lot of detractors of this series that lose their minds over it. Uh, and I think I think Tim Sheridan has done as much as he can to make this just a story that possesses as much verisimilitude as possible. It might ruffle some feathers that Alan Scott, God forbid, had a sex life. Well, this is an adult story. It is it, it is probably just touching on Black Label. I mean, it just really touches on these things. But I'm enjoying it. I think this possesses a high amount of verisimilitude. I think he's done a really good job, uh, especially at incorporating. It's impossible to se to separate the sexuality of Alan Scott from the 1940s in if you're writing a comic book of Alan Scott with in the modern age. You just can't. Not in this, not in this sophisticated comic book modern day writing that we live in. This is this is this has been well done. This has been well done. It's an easy to follow story. It, it's consistent with the theme and the mythology of Alan Scott, but it is heavily incorporating a sexuality. That's why a lot of people—I won't say a lot—but certain people are getting very, very upset with it. And I think that's unfortunate because they're so blinded by their own whatever that they're missing out on a good story because I think this is really good and I, I love the colors of the arts great and I'm really curious to see how this wraps up and what the relationship and how it's going to play out in in Alan Scott's relationship with the Red Lantern and in particular as we'll get into JSA the uh, JSA issue uh, seven this week yeah how it's going to play out there as well because this is the Red Lantern is probably one of the most interesting new characters and this new and the next generation of Red Lantern is one of the more interesting uh, characters to come out of DC in a long time. Yeah, I agree, hundred uh, percent. All right, up next we have Batman Beyond Neo Gothic issue number six, the final issue of this second 
uh, of the Batman Beyond miniseries from writers Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Max Dunbar is the artist. Rain Barreto on colors. Hassan Otsman Elhow on letters. Uh, what do you think of this, Rock? You know what? I've uh, as I've said before, I've I've never been a huge follower of Batman Beyond. I uh, even back in the day when I I, I got a huge DC animated collection. <laughs> the one the one collection that I that I didn't the one series that I never bought was Batman Beyond. I never really got into it. And I'm kicking myself because that first issue of Batman Beyond is uh, worth quite a bit. <laughs> but in any event, I, uh, I, this is a nice wrap up to the six issues. I, I, I was, I didn't like the, I didn't like the fact that John Constantine became a bad guy last issue. I thought he had become sort of like the main and antagonist last issue. And I'm, I'm pleased to, I was so wonderfully pleased to discover that, you know, in that cat boys, a battle against, against John Con, a corrupted John Constantine, he's successful. And at the end, there's a, just a wonderful, I love, there's a wonderful scene between cat boy and John Constantine where, where Constantine in true John Constantine form, the Constantine that I know and love, even though this is an older version of him, he takes back all the curses uh, before he dies and passes. He takes back all the curses. Uh, it takes them because he had given them all to, to his apprentice Catboy, but he takes them all back as his final act of redemption before he passes. I thought that was just awesome. And of course, you, you can just see John Constantine doing that because even if his soul is in hell and possessed by multiple demons, I don't care if John Constantine is dead or whatever realm he exists in after he dies, he's going to figure out a way to maintain his, his spiritual integrity. And, and he's always going to have a cigarette and he's always going to have an attitude. So I really appreciated that <laughs> in, in this story. And that was the most, in, uh, that was what I got out of the story the most. I, I thought it was, I, I was less interested in the, in the actual, the, in the other in Batman Beyond's character, in uh, I was less interested in that, uh, and uh, I, I should note that this does end with uh, while they while the 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 risings of of the of the Gotham underworld that is essentially kept at bay by by Catboy under under the streets of Gotham uh, by defeating ultimately Constantine. Uh, Batman Beyond manages to uh, defeat the, the the mayor. I forget his name up on on the uh, uh, along with Detective Boom or whatever her name is. And uh, it was all in all, it was it was it, it was a nice ending. It, it wrapped up things nice uh, with a promise of more things to come. And uh, I actually quite like the uh, cover B as well. I thought it was pretty cool. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was okay. Uh, one of the things that was kind of disjointed to me, so, you know, this whole idea of going deeper and deeper and deeper in, into the under Gotham, uh, only to, you know, pull back up and fight the giant killer croc, you know, above the city. Meanwhile, Kyle the cat boy is down there with uh, Constantine and a little bit of redemption for Constantine. I think you and I both, <laughs> we kind of thought that Constantine got done, got done dirty as sort of a, a fan favorite, but he's always been a bit of a jerk. Um, so all in all, it was a satisfying story that, that was probably needed to kind of establish th what the status quo is for Batman Beyond going forward, but, but a long way to get there, right? Um, you know, Batman Beyond choosing to reveal his identity was interest, an interesting choice. 
Well, does it matter that much in the future? It's been problematic in the past when heroes have revealed their identity. We haven't been big fans of it. This idea that the Lumos tech nanites are still in all Gothamites and they can manifest them if they want to become their own version of Batman Beyond, that's interesting as well. But I'd rather would have seen more of what's what's above the city. You know, what what is Gotham? You know, now that we've moved past the living Gotham that we had, or the sentient Gotham that we had in the first miniseries, <coughs> Lumos is, is in the wind after this series. It's kind of like, so So what is it like? We got to see the, the under Gotham, but does that really matter for the future of, of Gotham City, of Neo-Gotham now? Yeah. I mean, you could argue that this whole uh, series was just kind of set up. If they get to do another one, and I hope they do, especially with Max Dunbar on art, because his art is absolutely fantastic, does a fantastic job of marrying the so almost classic DC house style with you know, future versions of a lot of these characters. And, and so I hope that continues. But now now we need to know, what is what is Neo-Gotham like? Are the Jokers still around? What is Batman Beyond's role? Is it as important as it used to be? There's hints that Bean Booma might run for mayor. That could be an interesting storyline as well. But is Batman Beyond as needed if everybody can, can, to some extent, access Batman Beyond powers and protect themselves? Like... Great that we got the, the underworld of Gotham. We got a chance to see, you know, the Batman Beyond version of a lot of characters we hadn't seen before. But I just don't know that it was necessary. I would rather focus on Gotham City itself, the, the above city Neo-Gotham, and see what see what that is. Um, and maybe it's just a, um, a product of the fact, like, like you said, you and I, we haven't read a lot of Batman Beyond. So uh, I haven't seen a lot of that. Maybe others, we've seen enough of that part let's go somewhere else they chose the under gotham um uh, but we'll see we'll see where it goes ultimately this is an entertaining series i definitely like the the voice that's given to uh terry mcginnis in terms of you know his dialogue and his heroism when he's being written by this uh hive mind as they like to refer to themselves uh colin kelly and jackson lansing so uh all right up next let me get it open in front of me. We have Action Comics Annual or Action Comics 2023 Annual One, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Max Rayner. Colors by Matt Herms. Letters by Dave Sharp. And this is giving us the the conclusion of the New Worlds saga. Uh, this is part five. The whole idea of the the Blue Earth movement. We found out it's um, an Al Ghul from you know a different planet. Um, what is it? Earth 48, I think. Yeah. Sister uh, Shadow. Yeah, yeah. Sister Shadow. And she's gone in and she's kidnapped Superman's daughter, one of the, the super twins, and is, is trying to brainwash her back into the time when she was uh, on War World, when she was you know one of the chained and powers coming from chains and what have you. So this is the conclusion of it. <clears throat> I have to say, out of all of the arcs that Philip Kennedy Johnson has written, I think this New World's arc might be my favorite. Um, it's had fantastic art throughout and I, I've you and I both kind of talked about it at the time when Superman brought Osul Ra and Otha Ra back from War World and we wondered if they weren't 
in some way kind of a, a proxy replacement for, for John Kent having been aged up. Um, and they felt it like a little bit like tokenism in, in, to some extent. Uh, and they really kind of come into their own in this issue as characters and seeing the super family work together, seeing all the idiot blue earthers who were sort of brainwashed into believing all the bullshit that sister shadow was telling them, um, that, that wasn't, you know, nice as well. Uh, and again, it showed the super family in the best light. Cause they, you know, if it had been me, I'd have been like, I told you so you dumbasses. They're much more charitable than that. Uh, and say, Hey, you know, you want to make up for your, your, you know, bad takes, join us, help defeat Sister Shadow, and what have you. So tons of action, really satisfying conclusion and story. Um, man, I'm going to be sad to see Philip not on action anymore. Um, but this was a great way to go out. He goes out on a big high. Uh, and like I said, the Max uh, Rayner art is just fantastic. Gorgeous colors, a lot of action, a lot of characters. Rayner's up to the task. Uh, very challenging. So uh, what would you think of it? Yeah, well, first I'm going to echo your compliment to Max Rayner, the artist. I, just a fantastic job. This this really feels epic. This feels at least equal in scope and as epic as War World, even though maybe it hasn't got as much fanfare. It it feels, for me, it feels uh, just as... Um, I, I can't believe I enjoyed this as much as I did, especially since since Sister Shadow was just revealed as the villain last issue. This this I do get a sense that this was he had to like rush to this ending. It, I almost feel like we, I wish he would have had more time to maybe flush some of this out uh, because suddenly I understand why now. Why did we why did we get Bloodwind and Demon in one of the past annuals or something? And now I understand why, because when when. Superman shows up with Demon and Bloodwind at the beginning of this issue uh, to, uh, you know, to save the day and and, and to uh, and to make their way back to Earth to basically uh, stop uh, the, the invasion of Earth from Sister Shadow's forces. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. And plus, you know what I like, and maybe it uh, maybe it's because I'm a father to, to a nine year old uh, daughter a daughter, but I really I I really like those moments with Superman where he really he calls Ortho and uh, Ortho his son and daughter. There he calls them. Their son, his, they're his son and his daughter, and he he's, he's, he says to Ortho, you know, you're my you're my little star child, and that's what they are. It's Red Sun and Star Child. So they got cool names, uh, you know, Red Sun and Star Child. So at the very least, PKJ has that legacy. From the get go, I've I've been I've been somewhat vocal about not being a big fan of this expanded Superman family. I'm not a big fan of the Super Twins. I'm not. But goddamn, if anybody could actually tug at the heartstrings and make me care for Ortho and Arsel, two of the worst names in comics, I like Red Sun and Star Child much better. <laughs> Red Sun and Star Child are much better names. Uh, PKJ pulled it off. He made me care about these characters uh, more than I, I initially was inclined to let myself feel for. Of course, that's that's what a good writer does. Uh, if you, when I can go into a comic with a predisposition or a predisposed looking at characters and have my mind changed from the force and the, and the writing, that's a high compliment and I'm giving it to PKJ. And again, the art was fantastic. I really like Sister Shadow as a villain. She's a complete bitch, but she has her own agency, her own and her own agenda here and it's nefarious and it's uh, uh, I mean, she, she almost won here, which of course 
villains always almost win. But I thought this was very well done. And all the Superman family came together. Even the villains that, even the Blue Earth, the members of Blue Earth that were fighting against the Superman family and were manipulated by Sister Shadow, they realized they were wrong. They turn, you know, they, they end up fighting alongside the Superman family to win the day at the end. I mean, all in all, this is, this was a great story, a great a, a, literally a great saga from War World till now. PKJ has a, has a lot to be proud of here because this this is going to make a real nice omnibus, which inevitably will grace uh, grace the uh, shelves of uh, retailers, I'm sure, sometime in 2024 or, or maybe 2025. We shall see. But overall, a satisfying ending to this to this run, even though it did feel like it was cut short a little bit. Yeah, I think he knew it was coming, so it, it didn't necessarily feel cut short to me, but but I take your meaning, and when you say, you know, what a great run from War World to this, here's here's the thing, right? Like, in a way, any anything that PKJ does, you know, unless he gets like a ten year run, may in some ways feel short because the man is so brilliant at world building, and 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 even establishing worlds for known characters, known properties, like Superman. Obviously, it's a known property but he's introduced so many new things right like the um i can't even remember what they're called they're not kryptonians but the the war theologians the yeah theologians like coming Theolo up with the idea of theologians and you know different ideas you know war world and the you know the chains and he who held the chains and you know sister shadow and like these are just fantastic ideas and you can build very rich long running stories with these uh, and it still feels like there's so much that he could do. Like we had that amazing scene early on in his run where <clears throat> Lex teleports him, you know, far, far away and he flies back in no time because his powers have leveled up. He, he hardly got to explore Superman's powers being leveled up at all, at all. I would have loved to have seen more of that. So it's sort of a product of, again, how talented Philip is. He comes up with all these great ideas. There's just never going to be enough time for him to explore all of them. Uh, unless he does get, you know, a, a five or 10 year run, which that's just comics don't do that anymore. I wish they would, honestly, like I would love to have PKJ have like a maybe not quite as long as Peter David had on the Hulk. But, uh, you know, I'd love to have seen him get a chance to stay longer on Superman. Not to say I'm not excited to see what Jason Aaron brings. Um, but again, there's still some stuff I, I would have liked to have seen from Philip. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have... Batman, <clears throat> The Brave and the Bold. Three stories are, yeah, four stories here, actually. We have the conclusion of the Batman Pygmalion story. That's part three by Guillaume March, story, art, and letters. Arif Prianto on colors. Wild Dog, part two, Here Comes Trouble, written by Kyle Starks, Fernando Passerin on pencils, Eau Claire Albert and Wade Von Grobiger on inks, Matt Herms on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Then we have Aquaman Communion, part two. Gabriel Hardman, writer and artist, Matt Hollingsworth on colors, Simon Bolin on letters, and then Angels in the Architecture by John Higgins, story and art, Troy Petrie uh, on letters. So uh, I'll start with Angels in the Architecture by John Higgins. Uh, it's black and white. I thought the art was absolutely fantastic. I thought whatever story John Higgins was trying to tell was way too big for the space that he had. Something to do with kids who are, are partially paralyzed or have trouble moving around and then mixing it up with this idea of this kind of super soldier armor for the military. 
uh, and then the kids were thinking they were playing some kind of VR video game, but they were actually going out and really performing it. But then they were being killed by the, the, the drugs that they needed to operate the suit or the suit itself. It wasn't really clear. It, it just it felt choppy and kind of jumped around. And the timeline was sort of extended. Like it just it, it, it didn't work. It didn't work. The, the idea was really fantastic. It could have worked as, you know, maybe a six issue miniseries. And the art was absolutely gorgeous, especially seeing it in black and white, seeing all the textures Higgins was bringing to it. But it, this is just a wrong format. It just didn't work for me at all. Uh, I, I guess I'll work backwards. Aquaman communion story is pretty fun. I don't necessarily know what it has to do with Brave and the Bold, but you know, I guess Batman teams up with these other characters or has in the past, but not in this story. It's just Aquaman uh, actually teaming up with apes from Gorilla City and trying to stop uh, the Dominion from uh, from invading Earth through an underwater secret base of the gorillas. Uh, it makes sense if you read the story. <laughs> the art from Hardman is what you expect. Uh, interesting sort of take on Aquaman, the way Hardman scripts him. Uh, but it works. I mean, Aquaman's really, he doesn't get enough credit for this, but he's a relatively flexible character, not always written the most uh, consistently. So that works as well. And then the Batman Pygmalion story, I'll skip over Wild Dog. The Batman Pygmalion story, uh, I've been re- very impressed with what Guillaume March has done, uh, story art and letters throughout this story. But I will say that for me, the, the end here was the weakest part. And not because the it was a letdown on the artistic side or even the scripting or pacing. I thought those were all still up to the high standard that Guillaume March um, gave us throughout. But... I just sort of felt like that the ending was a little bit um, sort of expected, you know, sort of cliched. What was interesting throughout the story was this guy who who has memory loss, thinks he's Batman, uh, you know, just has that belief, is actually successful in a lot of ways, at, uh, performing and acting as Batman, stopping crime and saving people and what have you. And that led an emotional weight and a poignancy to the story. And then at the end that's sort of left by the wayside. Um, and I understand what March was trying to do. That, that guy does give himself up and let him, he has to stand there and let himself get beat on so that the little girl um, that has befriended him is not hurt. And so there's, you know, this idea of sacrifice, but we know he's going to make it out. Okay. Because Batman's actually there. Batman will actually come and save the day. So he, he lost a little bit of his uh, effectiveness as a character as sort of the the antag or the protagonist of the story, because you know Batman, the actual Batman, Bruce Wayne shows up last issue, uh, and now c- continuing in this issue, and so this guy Bryce sort of takes a little bit of a backseat, you know, Bryce instead of Bruce, um, so he just lost a little bit of his his agency, uh, and being that the story ended up being feeling a little bit cliched, um, I just didn't think that the ending quite lived up to the quality of the the previous two installments, not to say it's not good, not to say I didn't enjoy it. Um, but I just didn't enjoy it to the level that I enjoyed the first two. And then the wild dog story. I mean, I'm becoming a big fan of Kyle Starks. I mean, I love how much like peacemaker, but, but the story is not as humorous, darkly humorous, or definitely not as much potty humor as we got in peacemaker tries hard, but you can definitely say that wild dog takes himself as seriously, takes his quote unquote work 
as seriously as uh, as Peacemaker does. And it's it's a lot of fun to see. Um, and there are still a few one-liners here or there. Um, and the art is just, it's fantastic. If you're watching us on YouTube, uh, Rocky's got a page up right now. And I, I noticed this when I was reading it. When Peacemaker goes to try to get some information uh, from this enforcer, if you will, this kind of mob enforcer, criminal enforcer, and agrees to fight the guy. The guy's all about alpha male, what just espouses complete nonsense. That's that's where the humor comes in, you know. He's like, "Oh, women want to be dominated and manhandled, or whatever." And there's a couple women there, like, "No, we don't." But anyway, when Wild Dog agrees to fight him, and the guy turns around and sucker punches him, and instead of it saying like "boom" or "pow" or whatever, it just says "haymakered." I, that was just fantastic. Like, there's a couple of other times where uh, you get some sound effects like that as well. Um, and, and, you know, little details like the fact that Wild Dog's being sued by his former college. He's considered the best football player to ever play there. Um, and their mascot is the Red Dogs. And that's the, the little red dog you see on his shirt, typically. Yeah. But he can't <laughs> wear that right now because he's being sued for wearing it. That's funny. That's satirical. It's hilarious. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan. Like Wild Dog, without question, is my favorite story that was in this particular issue. So now that Gizmo of the, what is it? The fearsome five, I think they're called now that he is um, trying to take over the Midwest, these did five, four or five different crime families that kind of run the Midwest. And he's like, ah, there's not a lot of heroes out here in the Midwest. I'm going to come here and I'm going to take over. And uh, the families don't take him seriously because he's Gizmo. I mean, first of all, your name's Gizmo. And you're like three feet tall. Of course, no one's going to take you seriously. Uh, but, yeah, that was kind of fun to see. And uh, obviously, he is formidable when it comes to people that have no power and no special weapons. Uh, he is more, you know, more of a threat than them. So how it's all going to play out, Wild Dog's going to be able to defeat him or not, we'll have to wait and see. But I thought it was just a hell of a lot of fun. And I thought the artwork was, was very impressive as well. Like, I was a big fan of both the line work and the colors. Um, you know, Fernando Passerin is somebody whose art, you know, I, th I think the first time we saw his art was in the, the Future State, stuff that happened a couple of years ago. Uh, he's just got a very fine line, great details, and then Albert and Von Grabager, veteran inkers, really know how to get the best out of his line work. And then of course, Matt Herms on colors, fantastic job as well. So uh, yeah, overall, pretty strong issue of Brave and the Bold. What are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Well, uh, in the uh, in the Wild Dog story, there's a great uh, great scene, uh, arti wonderfully artistically rendered by Passerin, where this the, the main villain walks uh, upon the stage, and you only see him from the knees down. And you're you're imagining you're not imagining this three foot gizmo as the character. So it's just it's just perfect. I mean, you're just imagining like the the villain finally makes an appearance, and then and then you just span back and you see this basically this glorified midget who, who's called Gizmo, and it's kind of hilarious because you know wild dog wild dog i mean it's impossible not to get peacemaker vibes from wild dog he's wild dog even though wild dog i i believe well i think i, th I think theoretically peacemaker was created first but i mean peacemaker is more popular than wild dog and wild dog is sort of like i i think now he's the poor man's peacemaker but a perfect writer for him kyle stark starks uh he uh he's peacemaker uh uh 
Peacemaker tries harder, that series, that six issue series, I think I put it number eight, my top 25 DC comics of 2023. I think that was number eight. But anyways, it was just an excellent. And this continues the humor, the fun, the crazy plotting. It's 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 a joy to read. Um, with respect to Pygmalion, where the, the other character, this character who ends up, his name is revealed, his name is Frank, who a, a character that we thought maybe was, uh, that we thought maybe was Bruce Wayne, was actually Batman that lost his memory and was, you know, falling in love with this new family and that it ends up being this a completely different guy. And uh, it all cut, wraps up into a nice little bow and the happy ending. I agree with you, it wraps up very conveniently, but I like it. It's Frank making a sacrifice. And I like this the central moral of the story that basically, you know, what's one of the central traits of Batman? Batman never gives up. Batman never, ever, ever gives up. And you know what? Neither does Frank. And what what it's how Batman inspires this guy who thought he was Batman for the longest time. He might not, he may have deep down knew that he wasn't Batman or came to the discovery he wasn't Batman, but the mere thought he only had to imagine he was Batman to capture the essence of Batman that is never give up, all put forward, make the sacrifice, do the deed, do what is right, do it because it is right. And that's what he does. And he just relentlessly pushes forward so much so that he, that this new Batman captures the attention of Selena Kyle, who as Catwoman arrives on the scene just in time to save the, the, the daughter that is being thrown off, out off the, off the top of the building. And, and everyone is ultimately saved, even Frank himself, despite getting the beating. I thought it was a wonderful story, uh, very well put together. And uh, kudos uh, that Pygmalion, sorry, Gillian March. I, I love his art. I got, I got Gulen March is um, one of the Christmas presents. I got another one of his art books, uh, volume two. It's gorgeous. In any event, yeah, really enjoyable. I didn't quite understand the point of the Aquaman Gorilla Gorilla City storyline, but it's not bad. You know, uh, you know, uh, Harding is uh, uh, that. That's the that's the writer, right? Is it Harding? Hardman. Hardman, right? Because Gabriel Hardman. Because yeah, I think he did. What's that? Writer and artist. Yeah, writer and artist. Because I think he also did uh, Earth One Green Lantern as well, him yep. and his wife. And uh, I really enjoyed that. They did volumes one and two, and I was hoping for a volume three, but I never saw the light of day. But in any event, I think it's, uh, yeah, like you said, it is an interesting, a different take on Aquaman. I kind of like it. I, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, my head cannon, I'm thinking Earth One Aquaman. <laughs> but in any event, yeah, it's a, uh, this is not bad. I'm, I'm still not picking up these Brave and the Bold series, but uh, overall, it wasn't a bad issue. Yeah, any thoughts on the black and white Higgins story? Uh, I, I, I actually, I'm not, I'm not normally somebody who's attracted to black and white, but this is really, this art is gorgeous. It really is. Uh, the only reason I, I checked it out, thank you for reminding me, is is because the art it, it really is compelling. I, I was drawn, I was drawn into it. I can't believe how much art was crammed into every page. There's a lot of substance here. Uh, not a very little space is wasted, and very well done. I'm uh, like you. I wasn't entirely clear on on the storyline, but I, I got the gist of it. The sacrifice made by the kids, the video games, the drugs to keep them going. It, uh, you know, there was a lot. John Higgins, uh, as the writer, he, he crammed a lot in there. And that was like one, two, three, 
it's seven pages. There's a lot of story there for seven pages. And I, I have to give some compliments to that because one of the things I always bitch about is, you know, too many writers learn to decompress their stories. But I, I got to, guys like John Higgins, I got to appreciate those that can cram a lot of story into a small amount of space. And if that means I'm challenged a little bit to do my own headcanon to figure out what happened, I got no problem doing that. So not bad. Yeah, almost a little, a little too crammed, I would say. So, anyway, let's move on. We've got Justice Society of America number eight from writer Jeff Johns. Mikhail Yanin is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Uh, as I mentioned, we get the uh, Red Lantern second generation. I suppose you could say here. So, what are your thoughts on this one, Rock? Well, uh, well, uh, first of all, I I have to say that I absolutely love this cover. This is a gorgeous cover, A, uh, showing off this Red Lantern, the, the, the daughter of the original, I guess, Red Lantern, uh, as sort of a mysterious character that, you know, flowing back to one of the, one of the best series that DC had came, that came out in 2023 was Stargirl, The Lost Children. And we, we also had the Justice Society as well in 2023 where we got hints of other characters, one of them not only being all these other JS legacy characters, the children of the JSA characters, and start in the Lost Children, but also we end up with this character Red Lantern, and whose existence has been sort of just revealed lately. All these characters that we thought we we never knew they existed until now. Well, in uh, Jeff Johns, uh, you know, unfortunately he's leaving DC <laughs> in 20, 2024 here if he hasn't already left, and but. But thank God, at least we're getting this great story. It's called Blacklight. Uh, Mikel Janine's art's truly fantastic. This is essentially this, this new Red Lantern searching for her daughter. Alan Scott is, is kind of being a dick to the other members of the Justice League because um, Huntress wants... Huntress who's from the future, she's still on this kick that she's still hell-bent on recruiting new members for the... She wants to recruit all these members, new members for the Justice League that, frankly, in her time, were villains first before they became redeemed and joined the Justice JSA. She wants to circumvent all that and sort of, like, speed up the process here. I don't blame Alan Scott for maybe telling Hunters to maybe take a hike. you got a stupid plan here. You know, if, if somebody's destined to be kind of a villain before they redeem themselves, maybe there's not a lot we can do about it. But in any event, Huntress is forever thinking the, about the best in, in, in people, uh, unlike her father, and who's always paranoid, of course, that being Batman. But this, this Crimson Flame character, who I, I keep calling Red Lantern, although I guess I shouldn't, this Crimson Flame character uh, uh, is, is somebody who, while still a mysterious character, it's the timing of this issue is for once, and maybe it's not because of the Jeff John's delay, but just as the mystery of who the Crimson Flame is is playing out with issue three of Alan Scott Green Lantern, now coinciding with this one, the the true origins of the Crimson Flame still are somewhat of a mystery as as this issue plays out, which sort of heighten heighten the, the story itself. And I also really love the scenes that Mikhail Janin uh, renders here where, where Alan Scott goes after the, goes after the, the new Crimson Flame. Is that her name, the new Crimson Flame? Or she, I'm not sure if she has a name. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that they gave her a name. If they gave her a name or not, but you know, her father is Vladimir, of course, the former lover of Alan Scott. 
and but but just really great scenes. And I, I like the use of the red and green colors because just as Alan, whenever she gets one up on him, the page is all red and orange. And then when Alan Scott sort of finally puts his foot down, you know, he, he incapacitates her and the page is all green. Like it's just it, it's just it was I love when I can just look at the colors and sort of figure out who's getting the upper hand. It's nice. And I thought it was well done, well played out. And um, just the, uh, you know, Alan Scott continuing to uh, grapple with the fact that, that Vladimir's own daughter is a killer just like he was and probably still harboring some decades old guilt from have, you know, from, from his, from his, interactions with the crimson flame which were both intimate and adventurous uh it's it's curious i'm not sure exactly where this is headed but it is very curious completely out of the blue we get feral lad from the legion of superheroes uh, who's a legionnaire from the 31st century that i'm pretty sure is feral lad who uh, back in the day, sacrificed his life against the Sun Eater in, in classic Silver Age Legion of Superheroes lore. Why Feral Lad shows up in <laughs> in, uh, in storyline, I have no idea. But he was apparently looking for the uh, for Vladimir's daughter, this this Crimson Flame female Crimson Flame, and we don't know why. But you know, just a quick commentary with DC: We've had the Legion of Superheroes show up in the pages of Green Arrow. And now they've shown up in the at, in the pages of uh, of uh, Justice Society of America. So, what's going on here? And does any of this have to do with Amanda Waller? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so many questions, but I, I enjoyed the issue. Well, doesn't everything in the DC universe have to do with Amanda Waller? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, one of the things I'm struck by. So, first of all, great that this is coming out the same week as Alan Scott Green Lantern number three, because you know we get. Crimson Flame or Red Lantern there. Here we have the next generation mentioning him. So I love that uh, duality, looking back in the past, looking forward to what's going on here. One of the things that is interesting also is to look at the different behavior of Alan Scott, right? Getting to see Alan Scott at the beginning of his career, getting to see him much, much further along and the fact, like the way he's acting, we've seen a lot. If you've read, you know, Jeff Johns' Just Society, Society run, you've read a lot of Alan Scott. And you know he tends to be a pretty even-keeled sort of character. Uh, if you haven't read that and you've just seen him kind of show up in these you know, uh, Infinite Frontier one-shots and Dawn of DC, other kind of stuff, again, you, you get a sense that he's, you know, caring He's he's out of the closet now. He's talking to his kids. He comes across again as as you know a really decent guy. Now we get him in the pages of this Justice Society book this week, where he's being reminded of you know for lack of a better way to put it the mistake in his past of you know falling in love with this Johnny Lad of trusting him, and and we don't know the resolution with him in the Crimson Flame yet. Um, but his demeanor, like his, his lack of self-assuredness, the trauma, the pain is still there. That is interesting. That is interesting that in the same week, we can see these two different sides of Alan Scott. So, uh, again, I don't know if DC did it on purpose, 
it just happened to be serendipitous, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, as far as the art goes, I mean, what can I say? It's Mikhail Yanin, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the color work is fantastic as well. Big fan of that. Uh, and then, yeah, why Feralad is showing up at the end? <clears throat> I mean, we haven't had Legion of Superheroes since the Bendis uh, version, which um, to say it's not my favorite um, version of, of Legion of Superheroes would be vastly understating it. Uh, not that I don't think Brian's a big fan of, of Legion, but it just it was so different and not not my favorite. So how we might be going from one extreme, you know, Justice Society thought of as kind of the golden age, the golden age team in the DC universe, all the way to the future of Legion of Superheroes. I guess we'll see, right? I mean, the series started off playing with time, um, so we'll see how that all plays out in the end. But uh, you know, issues like this make me sad. As much as I'm excited for what Jeff Johns has to offer with his Ghost Machine imprinted image, issues like this make me sad that Jeff's not going to be writing any uh, DC characters for the foreseeable future. So, for sure. <clears throat> uh, okay, up next we have uh, Power Girl issue number four. Leah Williams is the writer. Eduardo Pansica is the penciler. Julio Ferreira is the inker. Colors by Romulo Fardo Jr. Letters by Becca Carey. Uh, come to find out, Superman has to apologize. Here. Come to find out, the big bad, the person that infected the alien that crashed the party and uh, on the boat in the first issue, uh, the the alien that eventually affected the Kryptonian lion in the zoo uh, at the Fortress of Solitude. It turns out it was the symbio ship. Power Girl was right all along. Superman apologized to her. I'm sorry. It's 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 interesting, and then it's also kind of cringy, right? Because she's like, I told you, I told you, if anybody would know, it's me. And then, of course, we get the end, sort of cliched ending that's not really an ending. And the symbiote ship has gone from infecting the, the lion to infecting Power Girl to actually infecting Kalix. And the fact that they can't like power girl was suspicious all along and now that it's in Kelix, she she can't sense it anymore I, I thought that was a little bit cringy um so I, this issue was okay <clears throat> i'm not a big fan of the character design of power girl or Paige when she's infected with the symbiote ship why I, I i guess it's a little bit of a lack of understanding on my part of why the symbiote ship just won't like, why is it so obsessed with her? Just because she was a part of it for so long? Like, she lived in it so long and it feels lost without her? Like, I was never really clear on that yeah. uh, and, you know, why it's such a threat to her. Um, like, I get that it's a threat to her, but why? What's it? I guess I, I'm, I'm, I'm missing the motivation that the symbiote ship as an antagonist has. Um, so, that being said, I do kind of like the. Um, the voice that Leah Williams gives to Power Girl. And I'm now that this first arc is over, I hope we can move on to something a little newer, a little more fresh. Um, because it, it, I feel like it, we're four issues in and we haven't really gotten started yet. It's, it's sort of how I feel. We had the seeds of getting started, planning that first issue with her with a job at Star Labs and what have you. And then before 
we really could see her go out and start living a life and sort of establishing a new status quo, she had to go and isolate herself at the Fortress of Solitude. Not the best in terms of, you know, establishing a new kind of a new life for Paige, uh, if you will. So, yeah, this has been been a little bit up and down for me so far. Um, but I'm a fan of Lee Williams, and uh, I I have faith that she can uh, can give us a good Power Girl story. So I guess we'll see. What are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Well, I really like how, how this uh, story arc ended. I, I I really enjoy how the symbiote ship. It, you know, there's there's an aspect now of Power Girls' original origin that is now having a permanent place. Well. Seemingly permanent. Nothing's permanent with comic books. It's one story away from disappearing. I know that, of course. But I'm just saying I like the fact that the symbiote ship now, the, the consciousness of the symbiote ship, the essence of it is now essentially dominating. It's con- taken complete control of Kelex of the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, so it jumped from various – it jumped from the lion and then it jumped to Power Girl and then the Omen intervened and then it jumped out of Power Girl and was seemingly defeated. And then it uh, – and now it uh, – out of the lion, it's back in – into Kelex, where it it will continue. I, I love the potential of what this symbiote ship now can do because now the symbiote ship, due to its flawed programming from the Earth Two original Earth Two Krypton, is now essentially going to be reading the programming of Earth Prime Krypton through Kelex through Superman's Fortress of Solitude, and due to its corrupted programming. What what future threat will the symbiote ship now pose? I think that's a pretty cool future storyline. I think there's a lot of potential there for Leigh Williams in the future to work with or any other future writer. I thought that was very cleverly done uh, because the symbiote ship is not necessarily evil. The symbiote ship just wanted to be part of something, and it 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 was it spent its entire reason for existence was to provide a world for. Power Girl was to provide a world for her, and that—that's what—that's what its programming was. And be, but because of a of a flaw in it, you, you know, it lost its reason to exist when 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 Power Girl was separated from it. And then with all these multiversal changes since then, Earth, you know, Earth Two disappeared, and then came. Then you had different all these crises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's and then suddenly the symbiote ship still actually exists. How does it exist? There are still some open questions here, but. I don't expect all those answers to come from Leigh Williams, and I don't even know if I want her to answer all of them. That can be future writers to do that, but I, I enjoyed the journey here. It, I would not have enjoyed it as much if it, unless Eduardo Pensica's art is fantastic. There's a, what, a picture where it shows Power Girl's eye ripped out. She's got a bandage over her face. She's talking to Superman. It looks so... This was actually a very gory comic. There's a lot of blood. I mean, she had this thing ripped ripped out of her eye a lot of gory things power girl went through considerable pain here i mean no wonder woman no no wonder superman's apologizing to her he not only misread the situation entirely but power girl went through a considerable amount of physical pain she looks really <laughs> roughed up at the end of this and uh, that's all thanks to uh, rendered by the uh, pensicus art i i've uh I, I didn't like the idea of power girl being a telepath when labeled took on the character but I've been in, I've really enjoyed these for, uh, first four issues and I really like that Pensica's art and I'm loving the cover A's by Gary Frank I hope they keep on coming so yeah I'm picking up the Gary Frank covers as well yeah. uh, alright up next we have Green Arrow number 7 written by Joshua Williamson art is by Carmen A. Dijon Domenico and Trevor Harrison colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr. letters by Troy Petrie so we talked last time 
with issue six, we were we were shocked. I was shocked. <clears throat> it was the final issue. Wasn't this supposed to be ongoing? So DC yeah. an- announced it as an ongoing recently, saying, "Yeah, coming back with issue seven. Um, you know, Green Arrow is now an ongoing." What I find to be interesting is when uh, when Joshua Williamson posted on social media about it, he said Green Arrow is is once again an ongoing. DC was trying to make it seem like they promoted it to an ongoing. Uh, I think what Williamson was saying was a little more accurate where it was going to be an ongoing. DC decided they didn't want it to be an ongoing and then restored it to ongoing status. I don't know what it had to do with sales and didn't, you know, whatever. I, I have no idea. We know Green Arrow is back after the, the machinations of Merlin, which, <coughs> excuse me, we talked about it at the time. Not sure how, Marilyn was able to manipulate time and send Green Arrow crashing through the multiverse or what have you, but he's back. He's trying to understand why the Justice League has been disbanded. He's trying to understand, uh, you know, trying to find Roy, trying to understand what Amanda Waller has been up to. So it sort of seems like, you know, with Williamson having been the one that has been the showrunner for a lot of that, the Green Arrow is sort of the book that you need to be reading to kind of understand how all the pieces fit together. I am perfectly okay with that. I think it works better in something like Green Arrow as opposed to Batman. You can't do it in Detective because what Rom V is doing over there is certainly completely on its own. Um, to a lesser extent in Batman with uh, with Chip Zdarsky uh, and, and Superman with Philip Kennedy Johnson and what have you. Um, you know, Green Arrow, he's sort of, uh, especially with this family feel to the book, you know, he, he just isn't as impactful of a character in a lot of ways. So his book, I think, would be a good one to say, okay, this is what uh, Amanda Waller is up to. This is what's going on over here. This is what's going on over there. How do all the pieces fit together? So he, along with Connor, his son, Connor Hawk, are, quote, unquote, spying on the heroes, trying to understand what's going on. He's very suspicious of Waller. He's even somewhat suspicious of his former uh, fellow teammates, from the Justice League that they would be willing to give up being the Justice League and just hand it over to the, the Titans, you know, the, the idea of being the premier league to protect the Earth from uh, from any threats, you know, inside, outside, our multiverse, you know, inside, outside our solar system, what have you. <laughs> so, you know, I like where this is going. Bit of a setup issue to kind of get a new status quo going. Um, doesn't really seem like there's necessarily an antagonist here unless it is going to be Amanda Waller, which, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, Wonder Woman talks about it in this issue, how she's she sort of has the blessing of the United States government uh, and, and they can't really touch her. Um, but as we have been saying for years now, the woman is an out and out villain, scumbag, waste of oxygen, basically, like. <laughs> you know, I make no bones about how I feel about her as a as a character. Um, but again, maybe that's what DC wants. Uh, she she's definitely eliciting a, a you know very emotional response in me. Like if I that's where you have to worry, right? Like if they make a villain where I I don't care, I don't care if they show up, they don't show up, whatever. Like apathy is the worst. Um, but when it gets to the point where you know I'm not buying books uh, that has Amanda Waller in it, I won't buy it. That's maybe when DC has to worry. I'm almost to that point, but not quite yet. What I'm hoping is that this plan, this these machinations that she has in place now to you know, kill off 
all the heroes, you know, you know, we'll see, we'll talk about it a little more when we get to Titans Beast World, then maybe this will finally open the eyes of the world that, yeah, this is a piece of shit. Throw her in a bottomless pit and walk away forever. Uh, yeah, we definitely could use a break from Amanda Waller. And I've been saying that since she was showing up in Bendis' action comics run. We haven't gotten a break yet. So <clears throat> anyway, back to Green Arrow. As I said, I think it, it's a good choice to be the, the series that sort of shows us where things are headed currently in the DC universe, kind of tie everything together. Uh, what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, well, I understand that this was – I, I, I am uh... – I'm going to sound very holier than thou when I say this, but I'm not falling for this trap by Williamson. He doesn't know what he's doing, and uh, this is this is all just telling us stuff we already know. That's because he doesn't know what he's doing, uh, because he didn't know this was going to be a series. This was only going to be a series of it sold enough copies, it sold enough copies, and now lo and behold, suddenly it's going to be Green Arrow and Connor Hawk looking for Amanda Waller. Doesn't DC have a plan? Who's the master planner of the next big event leading to Amanda Waller's big machinations? All right, it's Joshua Williamson. And we know we know from Dark Crisis, we know from Night Terrors, he changes his mind like the wind. He's terrible at big events. He's not good at putting them together. Uh, I, I'm not, I disagree with you respectfully. I don't. Uh, I agree with you that normally Green Arrow would be a cool character to maybe take on, maybe a Suicide Squad-like scenario with Amanda Waller there. But not when Amanda Waller is the big bad of the entire DC universe now. I, I'm less interested in Green Arrow. I'm not interested in the series. It's off my pull list. I'm not falling for it. It's off my pull list. Uh, I, I, uh, the first six issues with Merlin, I thought were... I was so disappointed. Still doesn't make sense why the Legion of Superheroes got involved in this series. Uh, I don't. I don't think Joshua Williamson has a plan. I know he thinks he has a plan. Wait till the story's done. Whenever it is done, we will look back and we'll say he never had a plan. That's because I'm not falling for it again. And I don't. He goes through and he talks to all the heroes here. He he met. He had last issue six. He was with Black Canary. He got together with her. She never bothered to tell him that the Justice League's disbanded. He's just finding out now. I, again, all this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm being overly harsh here. I know this is a setup issue. But what? So, so he's going to look for Amanda Waller and what? Everybody knows Amanda Waller's up to something. Oliver? Everybody knows that. I, Mr. Williamson? Everybody knows that. It's a, it's, it's a running joke in the DC universe. It's quickly becoming a joke. DC's got to reel this in in 2024. What is Amanda Waller up to? Wonder Woman tells Oliver that uh, ever since uh, Amanda Waller got back from Earth 3. Well, that's news to us, isn't it? This was the first confirmation we got that Amanda Waller's back from Earth 3. Because we never, we, we assumed, was that, was that, a, I mean, I, I guess we assumed she was, but okay, she's back from Earth 3. But what whatever happened to the Earth 3 Amanda Waller? Whatever happened to Earth 3 from War for we, There are so many questions we don't have. Now, none of that is Joshua Williams' fault, Williamson's fault. Maybe sort of, kind of, but I just I'm um, this you know. And if you want any further further evidence that this is going nowhere, is the final page reveal? We got Anamapea, Anam Anamatapapea, whatever the hell it is. What's that? Anamanapea. 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 Uh, with a name like that, what could go wrong with the plot, right? Crash <laughs> and burn. But uh, I, I actually don't mind the villain. It reminds me, I think that was originated back during uh, 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 Smith. Uh, Kevin what Smith. is it? Kevin Robinson? Smith. 
Kevin Smith's run, right? But uh, I'm, I, I like the villain here, but I just I would rather this not get tied up in the, in the, in Amanda Waller nonsense. And I'd like to focus on Liam and Roy Harper and uh, that relate uh, uh, that relationship. And uh, but unfortunately, if they're going to be continue to be just held captive by Amanda Waller, we're not going to see Liam and Roy Harper for quite some time. And I don't think for one second. I think we're just going to get little bits and pieces and teases along the way because this 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 series this character was never intended to play a major role in whatever event they have coming up. And to shoehorn them in, well, you know, I mean, anyways, I'm done ranting about it. But yeah, so interesting because I so I thought like jumping him around the multiverse future doing the whole old man green arrow kind of thing. Like I, it was okay. And the art by Sean Isaacs was fantastic, yeah. but the first six issues were ultimately kind of meh for me. This is in my mind, this is my, my the issue that I enjoyed the most from the series so far. It sounds like it's the one you enjoyed the least. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next we have the flash number four. This is from writer Simon Spurrier, art by Mike Diodato Jr., colors by Tris Mulvihill, Hassan Osman Elhow on letters. Rocky's going to explain it all and break it down for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, we were talking before we started recording about like, oh, it, it's so hard to understand what's going on here. So, like, apparently there's some garden that is outside of everything, right? Like, all, all of the DC multiverse. <clears throat> is is connected to the speed force and apparently with what's been going on so with what whoever and whatever is manipulating things i mean we saw these kind of almost like brother eye like creatures that we saw either last issue or the issue before that were sort of explaining things that that to wally and we're trying to understand what's going on uh and and you know wally himself is trying to understand it and been you know something's wrong with the speed force that you know that story that, that that story idea that's never been explored before and and wally has found his way to this garden where it's actually so far down and so far removed from this speed force and our multiverse the speed force doesn't even affect it and wally goes there this issue and we're kind of told by him that it's a place where he can actually have peace where his thoughts aren't racing where he he almost forgets who he is and who he knows and what his responsibilities are because he's so Zen. I mean, you almost think of it as like, what is this a place where you go and all the air has been replaced with like marijuana smoke or something like he's, he's so zonked out. He doesn't have a care in the world. Um, but his connection to Irie and her, her connection to speed force and the way it works eventually pulls him back because Irie and Liberty Bell are <clears throat> investigating um, this new drug that's going around in Gotham City that's uh, actually being distributed by Mirror Master of all people. And in some, this chemical, whatever it is, is allowing people to access the speed force. And so there, there's some concern about that. Uh, so what I do like about the issue and what I do like about the run of Spurrier so far is it's uh, given more agency to Irie. She she feels less like a little kid and more like an actual superhero. It is giving her agency. It is portraying her as very aware, very self-aware. Uh, she's still going to make mistakes. It's clear that there's still 
inexperience there, but it's also clear that she is somebody who is is brilliant and has a handle on her powers and, and can be, you know, a, a capable hero in the future. She just has to kind of learn the ropes. I like that aspect of it. The rest of it, it's it's really hard to to endorse because it's sort of all over the place. Uh, I will say that for the first time, what is this, issue four, right, that we've had? Uh, for the first time, I don't feel like there's just random word salad at any point in the issue uh, that Spurrier has been, you know, giving us um, just random words that are supposed to sound scientific and, and really cool or whatever. We didn't get any of that here, but I still feel like, and it may be that eventually we were spoon fed what's going on. But at this point, and, and you know, sometimes we don't like to be spoon fed, but I, I sort of feel like with Spurrier, maybe we don't need to be spoon fed, but we do need sort of a, a more pedantic explanation of what's going on. Like, uh, what are those threads that you see on Reddit? Like, explain it like I'm five. Yes. Yeah. Explain to me your plot like I'm five, because I'm a little bit lost. I'm a little bit lost with what's going on. Um, and we get sort of these, you know, half bits of information from um, from whoever this this person is in the garden uh, or entity is that's sort of guiding Wally or talking to Wally. We, we get little uh, bits of information from Mr. Terrific, we get little bits of information from Irie. Like nobody's saying, okay, this is what's happening. And maybe it's because he still wants to keep it mysterious and what have you. But it, I, I just, I don't think you can keep going like this in this convoluted storytelling like way and expect people to, to hang around. Now that might work on something like, you know, a Vertigo title, John Constantine, something magic related or what, ha what have you. But for a character as sort of basic as the Flash, and let's let's face it, as much as I love the Flash, he is basic. What's his superpower? He can run really fast. Uh, and and the fact that you're coming off a Jeremy Adams run, where you know, not that Adams didn't introduce some some cool ideas, um, but you know, he did keep it a little more traditional in terms of the sensibility of the story and keeping it very sort of superhero centric and kind of telling superhero stories that that people kind of expect now don't get me wrong i don't want writers not to innovate or what have you but again my worry is that people just aren't going to hang around for this if you know they've invested in four issues so far and they don't know what the hell's going on and they you know read it twice and are still left totally confused and i don't blame them for jumping off uh you and i read a lot of comics and you know if we can't understand what's going on how is somebody who doesn't invest the time and resources that we do in DC books, how are they going to understand it? So, yeah, I, again, I'm just not sure that, that Cosmic Horror and Cy Spurrier and Flash are a good mix. So, I don't know. What do you have to add? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I actually was sort of kind of catching on in the first three issues I in I, I maybe kind of got it. Uh, this issue lost me. Like this issue, I, I, I've, uh, and this is why I, we were joking before. For those listening, we were we were joking before. Jason, and I, I was, uh, I know Cy Spurrier's written some backups in Detective back in the day, and I remember Jace being kind enough to explain to me what what the hell happened, and I was hoping he could do this issue. But uh, uh, in any event, I, I read this three times, and I, I'm still, 
there's a lot of uh, uh, maybe word salads too strong a word, but it, it's words that um, that that come together that sound poetic, but don't convey anything of actual meaning to me. They they, they didn't help me. They didn't serve the narrative. Uh, I did find it interesting that uh, you know Irie and Liberty Bell are that this there there seems to be a side plot now with this Chad character that was killed in issue one. He was injecting some sort of drug in him that gave him access to the Speed Force. All right, so now this other character injects herself with it, and Irie and Liberty Bell take her out, uh, and they deal with that. But what does that have to do with the Uncoiled? What does that have to do with? The fact that Wally seems to be able to access a, a different dimension when he vibrates himself at a particular angle, and he can he can see the the otherworld effects that the Speed Force has, because the Speed Force, when you utilize the access, when you access the Speed Force in our dimension, you cause potential damage in other dimensions, and that's not entirely clear what the ramifications of that are, but there's a suggestion that maybe Mirror Master knows and Mirror Master shows up at the end here uh, to uh, try to take out Irie and Liberty Bell, but uh, Wally shows up to save Irie from Mirror Master. Uh, it's an interesting new take on Mirror, not necessarily a different take on Mirror Master, but uh, I get the sense that Mirror Master is a little bit, he's, he appears more ominous. He appears more... Um, dangerous in this issue even though i don't really know what the hell he did in this issue so i want to give Cy Spurrier some credit here that he still has my curiosity i'm tempted to say i'm i'm almost out of this story but i will i, I will give him this I, I i have learned some things by reading Cy Spurrier's other other works and one of them is is that sometimes when you read subsequent issues and i get i get a lot of this from ram v as well ram v's detective was like that uh, there was a period I loved how, how, how Ram V's detective started off and then I got lost and then I got it got clear again and then suddenly I love it and it's in my top 10 and Cy Spurrier I think I'm hoping this is going to be the same way where it starts off kind of cool it's kind of lost me now and I'm hoping I'm going to come on board in subsequent issues and there's going to be a payoff so I'm still on board but I still have a, a some question mark, and I do love I, I do love this particular style of art because it is different. Uh, Mike Diodano uh, Jr. He is he is one of my favorite artists, one of my top ten favorite artists to see. So we'll have to wait and see where, how this story plays out in the first arc. Yeah, I have the same same thing I've thought about the art since the beginning. I love this art style from Mike Diodato. It's different. It's original. It's fresh. I loved it when he did it. With, uh, on that infinity series he did over at Marvel. But again, with such a confusing plot, I, I, this is not simplistic art. <laughs> it's very, especially with it constantly breaking panels. Um, I just don't know that it's the right choice of art style uh, for this story, but anyway. Uh, all right, speaking of detective comics, we've got that up next, issue 1080, Batman Outlaw part five, Rom V is the writer. Jason's Sean Alexander and Mike Perton, Perkins handle the art duties. Uh, Dave Stewart on colors, Ariana Mare on letters. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I actually sort of played my hand already in my previous comments talking about The Flash, talking about Ram V in particular. I, 
this is one of those series where you know detective comics it's been a journey for me as a, as, as a reader i i've loved aspects of it i i love the uh, the the i love the origins of the Argum family and i love how rich and complex it got and yet then i would get pissed off and angry at how lost i got in one issues and and then the backups were a little frustrating which sort of tied into the main narrative and then i'm absolutely loving slowly loving how it's played out and then i'm loving Azrael batman coming along and I'm really liking now with Orgum, the Orgum uh, queen and her machinations in, in killing her own son, the Prince uh, the prince Arzen, and wanting to hang the Batman, making a big deal out of hanging the Batman, and how the, the, the Orgum family originally came to Gotham thinking, talking about, talking, uh, talking about taking over Arkham Asylum, but what they really wanted to do was a reality machine, uh, a reality engine, a th what they call a Thelmus engine. In the bowels of Gotham City, with the subway system, looks like neural pathways in the brain to basically uh, to just to strip the citizens of Gotham City their individuality to co to, like, to collectively create a mindset a, a, a collective of uh, of, uh, of control in in the body of this reality engine that the organs could control. And one of the way one of the characters that they controlled in doing that. They would have this. Uh, they would have their their arson, and they would have their uh, or their, their Asmir, Sorry, and they would utilize the Asmir in to take control of various people and the citizens of Gotham, including Harvey Dent, Two Face, screwing up with the duality of of, two, of Harvey Dent's mind. And as this issue as this issue opens up, we're we're, we're getting closer. You know. Uh, they they thwarted the hanging of the Batman last issue, and there's a there's an epic scene here where you know Selina masterfully uh, Selina with the help of uh, Jim Gordon and Cassandra Kane and Killer Croc and, and, and pardon me and uh, Mr. Freeze managed to steal the, the the corpse of Batman and of course even though he was technically hung his neck muscles he could still be revived why of course it's Batman if he can fall from the mood he can survive a hanging right but. Uh, uh, there's some really cool moments here that I got to give credit to. Uh, I mean, artistically, there's probably one of the most terrifying looks of Harvey of Two Face I've seen in a long while, where the, you know, Two Face is helping Catwoman get away uh, and protecting her as she's trying to get away from the organs of forces. And of course, then there's Azrael Batman, who's just kicking some serious ass. And the Organ Queen ends up killing her own son because, uh, you know, the, the, because there was a, it was a, there was an open question at one point that maybe Prince Orgum he, that he was going to turn that maybe he could end up finding redemption, and in a sense Prince Prince Arzen did find some redemption because he actually did warn he he did warn Selina what the plans were for Batman, and of course his mother knew and she's she he ends up having, unfortunately meeting his fate in this issue. Kudos to Ram V's. He had a fantastic Catwoman run, and there's great. There's a great moment here between Selina and Talia, and Selina, Selina and Talia have one thing in common, of course, and we know what that is. They both love Bruce Wayne. They both, uh, both love Batman, and so they they probably have a love hate relationship with each other. But they always want to protect the Bat and the legacy of Batman. And there's a wonderful dialogue between the two of them. Talia will, of course, do everything she can to protect Batman. And and uh, Selena knows that, and that's why she they're 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 rarely allies, but they they know what's at stake, and so they work together here. Ramvi just gets these characters, and they and the dialogue here just comes off so well, and um, 
Talia does in everything that Talia does is with the goal of healing Batman so that Batman's mind can heal from the possession of the from the effects of the of the Asmir and also hopefully not be completely taken over by Barbados, who's also still in his head. Uh, but even that was so cool, how Batman made a deal with Barbados to, ironically, it was his deal with Barbados to help keep the Asmir at bay. Uh, and then the ending of all things, the ending throws me a little bit, so just when I get a handle on things, all of a sudden we get the pink flamingo, we get the flamingo at the end with, uh, I'm not sure who that character is, because I think, uh, who is that <coughs> is that the Hanging Man? Or is that because he's a Grant Morrison character too? Uh, I think that's. Uh, I'm not sure what character that is, but um, it's interesting. Something more is afoot. So uh, it's. I guess it's. It's the embodiment of Barbados himself. Barbados and Flamingo show up at the end here. This story still isn't over. It has so many moving parts, but damn if I'm not. I'm not. I'm not invested in it. So what do you think of the main story? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talked about it previously. It's like, I'm ready for this to be over. Um, I am enjoying it. Uh, it is interesting. I think Ram V is, has accomplished what he set out to do, which is, you know, tell a very gothic, very brooding, very moody Batman story. Um, but it's like, I, I mean, this whole idea of them hanging Batman is, is a perfect example, right? Like this idea of them hanging Batman and, and, Selena putting together a crew to rescue Batman, this idea of it as a, as a heist. Like it, it's been like six issues. It, it doesn't take six issues to do this. It just doesn't. So it, it definitely feels like this storyline just, it's a little too decompressed. It, it just takes, it takes a little bit too long um, to, to get where it needs to get, to get to at times. Um, but in terms of, you know, characterization and and what the characters are doing and how they're acting, uh, yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it. I think it I think it works. Um, the, you know, the concepts are sound. Um, but again, I, I'm, I'm ready to 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 have something change. It, it feels like we get to little sections of the story and then we get stuck and we stagnate for a while. Like it's been quite a few issues since we've had any thoughts or dialogue from Batman himself. I mean, it's detective comics is a Batman book and he, he's a, he's a plot device currently, right? He's a plot device that Selena needs to go rescue and that, that sort of thing. So, um, but I do find it interesting that, you know, Flamingo shows up here cause I, I barely knew who the Flamingo was. You mentioned him as a Grant Morrison creation. I barely knew who he was. It wasn't reading Grant, uh, Batman when Grant Morrison was doing it. Um, and we saw him in the pages of Catwoman recently. And now the very next week he shows up here and I was like, really, again, is it like Flamingo week? Everybody wants to use him currently. Uh, so yeah. Uh, the backup with Damien having the dreams, I found to be a little bit interesting. Um, only because Damien is, is written so often as, you know, this, this kid who was, you know, wise and mature behind beyond his years. So for him to have, nightmares i thought was was an interesting choice uh and obviously it, it, there's some foreshadowing there um so that's that's okay i didn't mind it uh i should give the credits for the backup uh let me get there written okay. by 
Dan Waters, uh, Christopher Mitten is the artist, Triona Farrell on color, Steve Wands on letters. Um, so I thought the backup was okay. Uh, oh, one other thing about the main story, you know, it's hinted at the end that we're going to get some Renee Montoya question, uh, you know, scenes or, you know, she's, she's going to not just be in the story as Renee Montoya, but, but get, get out there on the streets as the question. I am looking forward to that. I like Renee Montoya question. Um, I think in, in some ways she's better suited to the role than Vic Sage was. So maybe it's just because she's a little bit more complex and was established as a character in her own right first. I'm not really sure. But anyway, what, what are your thoughts on the backup? <clears throat> uh, I, I don't have much to add. I, I thought is I really don't think sometimes I think Dan Waters is sort of wasted uh, on, on these backups a little bit. They don't, cause they don't, he's capable of telling stories with a lot of substance to them. And uh, cause I, I really loved his night terrors story that he did uh, for night terrors uh, detective uh, with Barbara Gordon and, and James Gordon and these other dimensional beings, the Pentamix or whatever they were called. I, I loved it. It's probably one of my favorite stories of 2023. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's all right. It's all right. I mean, yeah, it's just a, a, I don't I don't know how it's really necessary. I'm not even sure why it's called Elisa, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the the idea that Damien will one day either break or save the world. We've known that for Damien for the longest time. Damien's yeah. destined to be the Batman six six six. Damien's destined to be the the destroyer of worlds. De dest you know, Damien's destined to be the the second, you know, the, the the second coming of the devil or whatever the hell it is. Like, is he going to be a savior? Like, we we've been down this road so many times. I, in fact, it's, in fact, that the theory that Damien's going to be a villain one day is probably has probably had more mention than Amanda Waller's had appearances in the last twelve months. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I don't know. Well, we'll get back. No, I mean you're not you're not, you're not wrong. You're not yeah. wrong. So. Uh, okay, moving on. Titan Six, Beast World, Royal Blood, Part One. Tom Taylor, writer. Travis Moore is the artist. Tamara Bonvillain on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, you've been critical of Titans probably since the beginning of the series. Uh, yeah. And I, I kind of jumped on board with the last issue with going, God, this is the end of the first arc, and, and we haven't done hardly anything. Uh, so I'm going to throw it to you first uh, because, the, you know, I had said, let's see what he does with the second arc. Let's see where this can go. Let's see if he can build on any sort of momentum because, you know, almost in direct opposition to what's been happening with uh, the Titan series, we've both been loving Beast World. Um, and this second arc looks like it's going to tie heavily into Beast World. So yeah. uh, what do you think of this uh, issue six? Uh, it's well. It's the it's the best issue so far, I think, in terms of what we're getting. We're finally starting to get some movement, a little bit more substance in a particular issue. I I like the opening. The opening. Uh, I thought it was very predictable, only because the the moment I saw a flashback with with Starfire, I am I just immediately thought, oh, we're going to see because we're pretty sure that the villain is a Tamaranian. We know that. And so we were going to get a flashback. Oh, okay. The flashback. We're now going to know the origin of the villain. And sure as hell, yeah, it is. It's the Xander character that used to be uh, one of the, the bodyguards of the elite royal guard of on Tamaran, whose job it was to protect Starfire and his sister, Backfire. Um, he's actually ends up being ultimately revealed to be 
the, the primary villain here. He's the, I guess, the new, I guess, brother blood or whatever it is. And, and part of what he wants is that he, he worships star. He worships, uh, he worshiped the, not Garo, but he worshiped the, uh, the conqueror, uh, that, that, uh, Beast Boy defeated, uh, in Beast World. And, uh, he wants to restore, he basically wants to, uh, essentially be in control of all the, uh, I guess it, I, I'm assuming in control of all the spores. And, and, and this issue really just involves the, the Titans finally doing something more than saving trees in Borneo. You know, and, you know, they're not super environmentalists, this issue. They're actually flying around and they're actually, you know, Starfire and, and Donna Troy in particular are kick-ass in this issue. You can appreciate how powerful they are. They are basically the most powerful members of the Titans and they kick some serious ass. And it's really great to see that throughout the issue as they're flying around the world and uh, doing what needs to be done while Nightwing and Oracle you know, uh, are basically at, at Titans headquarters, basically just sort of manning the show and, and, and trying to get a handle on things. Nightwing's uh, taken Batman, who's turned into a beast, and he's, he's in a wolf, a wolf bat, and he's incapacitated, and they're checking him out. Meanwhile, Bibbo, the detective <laughs> chimp, shows up, and he, uh, uh, and he's, and he helps. They, they, they're, they're finally starting to figure out what we readers already knew, which is kind of interesting. They finally are finally starting to connect the dots that all the pieces of the spores that are infecting every all the heroes on the planet, the most powerful, they're actually pieces of Garth. And in order to restore Garth, they're going to have to get those spores back together because there's a, each spore is a different piece. It's a different piece, uh, some uh, different uh, different aspect of the consciousness of of Beast Boy, of, of Garth is how I see it. And so it's important. So not only so they know how to cure it, they, they need to get these spores out of people because it's not a virus, it's not an infection. Once the spore leaves, you get better. Uh, convenient, maybe as a plot point, but you know it is what it is. But it kind of makes sense given what we know about Beast Boy. That you know, like Beast Boy always said, it was previously established that whenever Beast Boy changes into something into an animal and he loses a piece of, of a limb or something as an animal, he, he might be able to change back and look relatively human, but he still has lost a piece of himself. And so now when he became Goro and he's got all these spores, it's, it's, it's going to be very hard to put Garth back together again. It's like Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Uh, how do you put that back together again for Garo? Well, that's going to be the struggle. In the meantime, uh, in the meantime, Zan, the, the villain who, a brother of blood who's ultimately revealed to be Xander uh, causes chaos by releasing Wolf, uh, by, by causing chaos in, in Titan's Tower. Uh, Nightwing gets possessed by one, or not possessed, sorry, gets, I guess he gets uh, infected, although that's maybe not the right word, infected by these Garl spores. And we don't know what Nightwing turns into, that's just teased. But it, it ends on the cliffhanger is that we get the revelation that, uh, who the, that this Xander he wants to get his god back, and his god, I'm assuming, is this the star creature that uh, Garo defeated in Beast World number one. So there was actually substance here. I think that this is a good. This is probably dare I say I would almost think this is a must read if you're reading Beast World. You should be reading Titans now. So I actually enjoyed this issue. I, I enjoyed it. So thank you, Tom Taylor, for finally giving us a plot with a little bit more substance. What about yourself? 
Yeah, I, it's a step in the right direction. Um, my my thought being, it's so dependent on Beast World, right? I mean, there may be people who are Titans fans who aren't necessarily reading Beast World. I mean, if you're a Titans fan, you probably are, but you know, not everybody has necessarily disposable income to be reading everything. So, you know, I get that as well. So it, it is a consideration. I, I feel like while I enjoyed this and while it's giving more history and more context to Starfire as a character and uh, Tamaranian as a world, um, it, it does feel a little bit like, well, I still don't know what to expect from Tom Taylor's Titans run. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what's just like a standard everyday arc of of Teen Titans can can actually be like. I don't know that we that we know that yet. I will say that um, I feel like we we do know um, we do know what to expect from Travis Moore when it comes to Titans artwork. However, he's yeah. drawn a lot of Dick Grace in the past, a lot of Nightwing uh, in the past, and if he's gonna t- not not that I know anything or I've heard anything about Nicholas Scott, um, you know, not being the regular artist on the book. But if you're going to get somebody to take over, Travis Moore would be, you know, pretty high up on the list. So yeah. I appreciate him and, and you know, him stepping in and his artwork I thought was very, very good. Um, but it, it, yeah, again, it, this just ties in so closely with Beast World that it's almost, it's almost a must read in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. and, but I guess, you know, a lot, DC and Taylor himself are, are probably of the opinion that if somebody's reading Titans, uh, Beast World, they're probably reading this as well. But like I said, just still not really sure what to expect from uh, this Titan series. Um, and it may be that we don't even find out <laughs> what we really can expect before the next big Waller event or before the, you know, which is entirely possible that we... Uh, that we get a, a return of the Justice League after that. <clears throat> something, something to think about, right? Like, where did a Waller show up first? Like the pages of Suicide Squad? Well, Suicide Squad themselves, this version of the Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad version that, that the vast majority of people know from video games and movies and what have you, that, that's not the actual, you know, this idea of villains with a bomb planted in their head, it used to be a bomb around their wrist would blow off their arm. <clears throat> but this idea of a bomb planted in their head that would go off, they're forced to work for the government. That wasn't the original Suicide Squad. That's that's new. That's relatively recent. The old one was more, you know, Challenge of the uh, Challengers of the Unknown, or um, maybe a little bit of Fantastic Four type, you know, veterans of the military that would go on these missions against weird monsters and what have you. But the, the Suicide Squad version that everybody knows is this, you know, Bell Rev prison, Amanda Waller version. That version spun out of Legend, the Legends series way back in, I think it was 1987 that that came out. That's kind of where Amanda Waller first showed up, made her uh, appearance. Um, what's interesting is one of the other groups that kind of first were known, became known in that uh, series was the JLI, the Justice League International. Uh, you know, that the Keith Giffen, J.M. DeMatteis, um, Kevin McGuire version, the Bwahaha League, as it's known. Could we see a repeat of that? Could we see Titans Beast War, uh, 
or perhaps whatever Waller event comes after, then spawn a new, you know, is that the time where they, they relaunch Justice League? So it'd be kind of interesting to see if it goes in reverse, you know, Justice League leading to the Legends, leading to Amanda Waller. Now it'd be Waller into the event leading to a new Justice League. Something to think about. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, enough of that tangent. On to what I'm sure is getting strong consideration from Rocky for his book of the week. The Penguin Number no. 5 from writer Tom King. Rafael Della Torre is the artist. Marcelo Maella on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, give us your thoughts on this one. Uh, well, this is another strong issue by Tom King. I've been, uh, I've been, uh, the Penguin is, was one of my, it was in my, I believe it was in my top five uh, for best comics of 2023. I think it was, I think it's been really good. I think this is the best iteration of the Penguin in decades, easily decades. Uh, and uh, I've read a lot of Batman and I've read some good interpretations of Penguin over the years. So uh, I'm not going to, you know, I can't say I remember every detail of every single Penguin story I've ever read, but uh, Tom King's Penguin, this, I've never been more interested in the Penguin it, that I can recall. <laughs> it, it's just, it's it's interesting. Penguin is making his way back to Gotham City, but he's uh, he wants to make an, he wants to come back in flying colors. Uh, he basically left Gotham City, leaving it in the hands of his children, but his children have made somewhat of a mess of things. So he's already recruited the help. He's recruited the forces of the 4th of July. He's recruited his uh, his uh, one of his ex wives, <laughs> and uh, here he's recruiting the Black Spider, who is uh, guy's name is uh, Miss, uh, I forget his first name, but his his last name is Needham. He's the Black Spider. He's essentially an assassin, and uh, the the entire issue is really uh, it's it's the Black Spider telling his story to the penguin, explaining to the penguin that basically he, it explains his origins uh, somewhat. And then the fact that he works for, he actually works for the penguin's children in Gotham city. So at the end of this issue, the penguin now has his spy, you know, he, so he's got a spy inside his own children's organization, which is uh, exactly what penguin wants and what penguin needs in order to make his move to take, uh, to once again, become the number one, uh, godfather in Gotham city. And that's what he, that's what he needs to do. Now, the issue itself is really focuses on, on, on the black spider. And he is a, he's an LGBTQ, LGBTQ character, uh, He's interesting. He's compelling. He's uh, he's got it's his motivations for for strongly having issues with uh, Cobblepot's children is uh, it's well established, and uh, he makes it clear to the Penguin that he'll help the Penguin, but he wants to be the one that gets some revenge on his on the Penguin's children. I thought that was interesting, uh, only because. I think maybe the black spider the the black spider might not be long for this world because, okay, maybe the penguin hates his maybe the penguin doesn't like his children but would the penguin allow anyone to kill his children? I I don't know you know because that's you know parenthood is a strange thing you know it's like you know you know you can say what you want about my kids but only I can hurt my children you can't kill them only I can and I'm never going to do that I, I don't know if the penguin has detests his children that much despite what they've done but clear here that the black spider very much does but this plays out in a very mature fashion this is this this whole series feels very black label and uh just well done 
and it feels fresh and it feels new. And I find myself cheering for the penguin. I want him to come back and kick some go the Gotham Underworld's ass. And I even want him to come back and surprise and kick the Bat Family's ass. That's how much I'm cheering for the penguin. I'm really enjoying this series. Speaking of penguins, it was a cover beat that's behind me for the watching with Oswald Cobblepot sitting on a throne surrounded by penguins. It's 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 quite cool. I quite like it. And there's a, I think there's a, it's probably the ratio variant. It's, I'm not sure who the artist is, but man is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, a cover C. It's just really gorgeous with in black, white, and yellow with uh, Oswald Cobblepot holding some fl yellow and white flowers and a and a and a bird that's again black, white, and yellow. Just uh, just a go some gorgeous covers this week. All around, all the covers are fantastic. Cover all nine yards, and the story here is just good. I mean, if you're if you've been enjoying the Penguin so far, this is the the recruitment is finally complete. The penguin ends up with his spy inside his children's organization at the end of this issue. And so, and now starting next issue, the penguin is likely going to start making his move. And uh, so, I mean, just, I'm just so, Tom King's done a good job of building up the anticipation in this series. And I'm, I'm, I look forward to every issue. What about yourself? Yeah, that cover that you mentioned, uh, the black and white were the only colors, the yellow flowers. It's Ben Oliver. It is a ratio. It's one in twenty-five. But yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous cover. Um, and I see that cover. It makes for some reason it makes me think. You know, Adam Driver would be a good guy to play the Penguin. Uh, yeah. You know, he's already got the big nose, hair very similar. Need to bulk up. <clears throat> yeah. I am a big fan of the Black Spider. The Black Spider is a, a kind of a throwback Bronze Age character um, that doesn't get used enough, in my mind. <clears throat> very similar to the bronze tiger in his uh, his abilities and in his usage uh, unfortunately he is an assassin he is a very good fighter but he will use guns as opposed to bronze tiger which only will use his uh, his fists um, but yeah er, er, this guy killed his own father he was high he was you know um, knocking over a convenience store and his father happened to be there buying cigarettes and he, he shot his own father uh that's how high he was and so from that moment he he swore off drugs and uh you know he's out to he's obsessive much like batman is he's out to to destroy all all uh all drug dealers and uh king humanizes him in a in a few different ways by by giving him a, a relationship with someone by having him narrate the issue and and talk about the choices that he's making and why he's making those choices. He comes across as not, um, not, it's not a situation where like Deathstroke, where he like has this certain code that he's going to follow. And it's not a situation where he's a hero or a villain. He, he very much is, is bases his decisions and lives his life on doing what's best for him. You know, and he, he like I said, he does have this relationship and he does, he is working for the penguins, um, offspring, these siblings, uh, you know, so he can get venom, so he can give it to this man that he's in a relationship with to ease his pain while he's dealing with this disease. But it's not, he's not doing it as a selfless act, right? Like he, he's doing it because he wants the person that he cares about to feel better, but also so that he'll feel better and he'll have more time with them. And so, you know, he is a very much a flawed character and, that comes through in the decision by King to have, his name's Eric Needham, um, to have Eric 
narrate this story and show us that he is flawed and he he you know does live in the gray area he's not a good guy but that doesn't mean he's pure evil either um he, he's made some bad choices he's maybe um you know not had the, the you know the easiest upbringing um you know based on the fact he was exposed to you know a lot of drugs and violence and gangs or whatever at a very early age uh, but you know nobody made him pull that trigger and kill his father um but you know he's out there killing drug dealers at least you know he's not killing innocents so I, I find him to be a fascinating character and i'm really happy that king brought him into the story because it is bringing in nuance right like i've said it a lot of times <clears throat> about the series how i've just never really seen the, the penguin as a formidable batman villain he's just not in my mind uh so when he does things like uh takes out all the helps servants or whatever like i just it's hard for me to buy it but you know i've said it a lot recently i've given rocky a bad time for not accepting what dc editorial is telling us right dc editorial is telling me when i'm reading this the penguin is a bad guy the penguin is somebody who's formidable the penguin is somebody who who's capable of murder you know not a henchman or whatever he can do it himself the penguin is somebody who is instilling fear into others you know, whether I want to think, ah, I wouldn't really be afraid of this pudgy old man. The fact is he's dangerous. The fact yeah. is he can't get things done. And like Rocky said, now everything's in place. Now the team is put together. I can't wait to see the penguin use this team, use this uh, machine for lack of a better term that he's built to take down his kids. He wanted to go live in peace in, in Metropolis and sell flowers um, but you know, it just wasn't in the cards. So clear that DC wanted to bring some malevolence and some menace back to the penguin. We said it all the way back in the, the worth days, uh, Marika Tamaki's detective run. Uh, what was the guy's first name? Rocky, remember Roger? Was it Roger worth? Uh, in Marika Tamaki's detective run. Yeah. The guy worth the one, the, Real estate yeah, developer. That was, his last name was Worth. I can't remember yeah. his first name. Yeah. Anyway, that was when we saw the penguin first get off his butt at the Iceberg Lounge. And, you know, and he himself, I think he even said it in the story, you know, it's time for me to take a more active role. It was clear at that time that DC wanted to, um, to raise the threat level of the penguin uh, back up. Maybe they didn't know how to do it. Maybe they opened up, hey, anybody have any ideas for, you know, what you would do to, to make the penguin, you know, do what uh, what Scott Snyder did with the Riddler and leveling him up and making him feel more dangerous. <clears throat> it's probably how it happened. I don't know 100%. Um, but Tom King is clearly up to the task, and I can't wait to see, uh, again, how the penguin uses this, these people, uses this team that he's built to take out his own kids. Uh, will he kill them? Remains to be seen. I mean, the Black Spider certainly wants them to suffer. Uh, like they're making his, uh, I guess, boyfriend, for lack of a better term, suffer. Um, so we'll see. And the art from De La Torre is sublime and amazing. The color work, especially Black Spider, fantastic. Just just great. And please, I, I mean, I know it's not the most like modern-looking costume, but please, DC, don't ever change Black Spider's costume. Perfect as <laughs> it is. I mean the one the one scene where he's standing on the dock and Batman shows up behind him, uh, it just looks fantastic. 
I mean, purple and orange, it's old school. Uh, I love it. Very Bronze Age. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Titans Beast World Part 3. Tom Taylor is the writer. <clears throat> Lucas Meyer filling in on art duties. Um, I got to admit, I mean, I, I lo- I'm a fan of Lucas Meyer's art, but having Yvonne Reis on the artwork for the first two issues, we talked a lot about it, how much it, his art and his art style makes it feel like an event. Um, so, yeah, Lucas Meyer does a fine job, but I did miss having Yvonne Reis uh, on uh, line work here. Ramulo Fardo Jr. handles the colors, and then Wes Abbott is on letters. Uh, so what do you think of the latest Beast War issue, Rock? I, I enjoyed it. I, uh, again, it's it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, just uh, so much action. There's there's just it's tons of action, and all the heroes are. I mean, uh, you actually feel that there is something at stake here because these these little garls, these little garls, garl spores, they're everywhere, and they're attracted to to the superheroes. So on the one hand, the heroes got to rescue ordinary people from the i guess this infection at the same time they literally have to worry about the 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 spores leaving leaving their hosts and being attracted toward them so in a way i mean they're they really are putting themselves in harm's way and then have to face even greater harm to avoid the very harm that they're preventing ordinary people from being infected by because the spores to remind readers are attracted to the most powerful so if you are a metahuman you're very much a prime target and one of the things that's discovered here uh, in this issue is they, they, the heroes do discover that, in fact, the, all of the people who are infected, all of the heroes and the villains that are infected, they, they seem to be attacking infrastructure. They seem to have almost – it almost looks like they're, they're or, that the attacks are orchestrated. They're not, they don't seem to be randomized attack. They seem to be attacking infrastructure. They seem to be doing something for a reason, suggesting that there's a there's a there's a a higher mind in control of of the spores, which is interesting. So is you got to wonder is this Doctor Hate, who uh, sort of helped sort of he sort of infected Beast Boy as Beast Boy was was you know having these uh, as these spores were released, and so is this all part of Amanda Waller's agenda because Amanda Waller ends up showing up in this issue and approaching Lex Luthor because she wants to utilize something that uh, a device that Lex Luthor apparently had as a weapon against Batman because he she wants to shut down and do some do some harm to Beast Boy uh, as she says in the final pages to Lex Luthor it's time to slay the Beast Boy and you got to wonder what's going on what um, you know again why uh if she's if dr hate was you know she has control of dr hate she's got she's got her hand in everything it's it's the one frustrating aspect of all this uh on the on the one hand it looks as if amanda waller maybe doesn't have control over all the spores because even peacemaker says to her peacemaker pretty much the right hand uh, man of, of amanda waller I mean, he says they're right behind us. He's referring to all these animal, all the the chaos that's that's going around, and yet Amanda, Amanda Waller never seems, nothing ever really seems to bother her. And part of the part of the mistake that DC's making with Amanda Waller is, I I mean, I realize she's basically just a a big fat big fat black woman, and you want to maybe give her some some agency of some kind, so she's not an embarrassment to superheroes or supervillains. But to have her never be afraid of anything, I know it just seems a little bit 
almost kind of odd. Like she's, I mean, there's nothing ever seems to surprise Amanda Waller ever, like ever. And it gets a little annoying. It's sort of like a, having a villain, uh, having a superhero that can never be harmed. You know, that if they're so powerful and nothing can harm them. Well, if you're a villain like Amanda Waller and nothing surprises you, she accounts for everything. She's 12 steps ahead of everyone, including Batman. And then just when you think she doesn't know what's going on, well, she actually, it's revealed subsequently that she actually did know what's going on. She was just pretending she didn't know that she didn't know that she didn't know what was going on. It just gets a little frustrating after a while. Uh, but that little rant aside, the art here is fantastic. I mean, uh, my favorite sequence is, is a Power Girl sequence where, she, where Power Girl is rescuing a plane and she ends up turning into this cool looking like eagle. And it's just absolutely epic. It looks gorgeous. The way Meyer, like drew the art is fantastic. She sprouts these fire wings that split and destroy this plane. And it requires like super, like John Kent to show up using his electrical powers to sort of incapacitate power, animalistic power or eagle-like Power Girl. Just epic. These are gorgeously rendered scenes which um i gotta say they give um uh i, I was gonna say dark crisis was pretty good for art uh, as well this one i i really like this is a pretty pretty close second uh because th this was really good starfire's battle against uh, a lion black adam also fantastic so, some of the choreographed fight sequences here artistically rendered absolutely beautiful and that, along with the plot coming in together, we got multiple superheroes from very, from all over the DC universe. This does feel like an event to me. It, it, it feels like there's, there's a lot at stake. And what I also like is one of the central complaints that we've, we both had over the last, at least, well, the last year is Titans doesn't, they don't feel big enough. This feels like, it feels like the Titans are more center stage. I, I, I feel like these slowly the legacy characters are coming more into prominence now because it, I and I like the fact that I read this issue and I'm talking about Starfire and Wonder Girl and Power Girl and you know sometimes it's nice to see something other than just you know the trinity getting the focus and so I again I I've been enjoying Beast World is by far the best event that DC's had out of their last three so uh, what do you think of it oh sorry you're on mute Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it as well. Uh, you're right. It does feel like an event. It does feel um, like it's moving towards something. Amanda Waller. Yes, she feels like a scumbag. Yes, uh, people are, you know, changing into different um, sorts of beasts and, and how Beast Boy. There's just a lot of moving parts and Taylor's doing a good job of, of balancing them. Um the other aspect of it is is the kind of the uh, the tongue in cheek, which is it's interesting. Like the the um, the dialogue, the scripting that we get, the the banter back and forth between uh, Barbara Gordon and Nightwing in this issue, uh, especially when they're kind of, for lack of a better term, making fun of of Batman when he's you know the the Wolf Batman or what have you. <clears throat> That's sort of interesting. Um, it's like, ah, is that a sentence that you you know you ever I ever thought I would say? Well. You know, it is sort of the, for lack of a better term, the, the, the business that they are in. So that's pretty fun as well. Um, yeah. But probably what what had me a little bit surprised, but, but but in a pleasant way, more so than anything, was did you catch when uh, John Kent 
shows up to try to subdue Power Girl when she's turned in. And and that's, you know, I won't get into how it doesn't make sense that she turns into what looks like a phoenix. That's not an actual animal. Uh, so what you, you mentioned liking it. I thought it was kind of cheesy, whatever. But yeah. when John Kent says, I'll handle this, and he sort of manifests some powers, he's wearing the electric blue Superman outfit. What is that? We've seen some hints before that John Kent, you know, he has powers that are different than his father's powers. We, we know that. Uh, but yeah. in what way and how so and, and whatever, we, we don't know. We're, that's still kind of up in the air. But that's so interesting because the electric blue Superman, I think, is so – it's an era of Superman that's so underrated. And uh, it, it was just – it was fun to see it. It was, it was really fun to see it. So how that's all going to play out, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I, I, I really enjoyed seeing that. And, uh, yeah, like I said, while the art is not my favorite, um, I think that, uh, again, Lucas Meyer does a fantastic job. You know, it's not his fault. It's not Yvonne Reese that, that we got, you know, in the first couple issues whose, whose art feels really epic and, and amazing and what have you. Um, but I will say that Lucas Meyer does, um, emotions in facial expressions a little bit better. And so it does suit some of the scenes better having Meyer on it, especially when we get the Donna Troy scenes in outer space where she's trying to reach Gar, uh, you know, that page you just had up right there with, uh, with, uh, Starfire's reaction to what's going on. Um, it, it is a credit to Tom Taylor and DC that they chose the, you know, to make the Titans the focus of this, they just as easily could have made this, you know, somebody else or something else, Batman or Superman, or, or, you know, this could have been the event that brought the justice league back. You still have beast boy doing what he did to take on, um, the necro star. Uh, but I think by giving the Titans the lead, uh, you know, there becomes an expectation for the Titans to show up a little more. And I think that works on a lot of levels because they clearly care about, you know, Garfield more than the justice league, just because they know he's one of their teammates. He's one of them. Um, and that adds some gravitas and some stakes to what's going on. <clears throat> Not that another team, the justice league or Superman or Batman or, or wonder woman or whomever wouldn't have wanted to say beast boy. But again, there's more emotion and more stakes because it is one of their own and, and it is up to the Titans to save the day. So we'll see how it all plays out in the end. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to to I want to give a shout out to uh, Donna Troy's use of her lasso of persuasion. I, I didn't yeah. mention that, but it shows her willpower, and that's her Wonder Woman moment of 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 of, of willing persuading Garo to to loosen its its grip, and that gives all the heroes a, a sort of a reprieve and a break at a very key moment in the story. So I thought that was very well done. It really shows Donna Troy's power, and I really like how it elevated her in that moment. Yeah, we don't get to see that uh, that lasso of persuasion enough, in my yeah. mind. Um, but yeah, it is it is pretty cool. Uh, all right, up, up next we have Harley Quinn number thirty five, Doctor Quinn, multiversal woman, Tinny Howard on script, Logan Farber handles the art in this particular issue, filling in for Sweeney Boo. <coughs> Excuse me, Triano Farrell on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Did you get a chance to read this? I I, I skim read it. A bit, uh... I'll be honest, I, I really like, uh, for those watching, I love, there's a beautiful homage cover 
which I think is probably a cover C. It's probably a ratio variant, uh, which is uh, so I won't be getting it because it's uh, I, they're always too expensive. But uh, it's kind of a cool homage to the first appearance of Harley Quinn. And but in any event, uh, as for the story itself, I, I continue to uh, I continue to be a fan of Sweeney Boo's art. I just don't know. Uh, I just don't think it's. Uh, I don't know if the DC universe is the place for her art. Uh, although maybe this type of Harley Quinn story is suited for Sweeney Boo. I, I guess it is. Uh, artistically, she she does she throws a lot on the, on the page here. Uh, it's this multiversal well, story. Uh, Sweeney, I, yeah, Sweeney. It's Logan Farber on art. Is it Logan Sweeney Farber? Boo, yeah, Sweeney Boo did the cover. But Logan Farber does the interiors for this issue. Oh, okay. Well, then they they mischaracter they miss they only put they, they never put his name on the cover. Yeah, they just put Boo's name on the cover. But uh, in any event, uh, Logan Fairbear, uh, same idea. I mean, the uh, I guess the the art's not. It, it's very colorful. It's very. I think he does his best to sort of like. I think imitate and try to make his art sort of consistent with Sweeney Boo. I think there's some similarities there. Uh, I just wish, quite frankly, that I wish I had a better sense of what was going on. Now, admittedly, I get frustrated with a comic. If I'm reading Detective Comics and I'm confused, I will read it a second time. I'm not exactly reading these issues a second time because they feel like they feel like cartoons. It's too cartoony for me. It feels like I'm reading a cartoon. And this Watini Howard, in my view, and I'll just come out and say it, but uh, and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, Harley Quinn is simply too many things to too many different writers. Uh, this is Harley Quinn is not a multiversal fighter. She's not a multiversal character. It, why would you have Brother I in a storyline like this? Why would you have Harley Quinn? Like, this is just the whole thing is off. It's wrong. It doesn't make sense. Earth. It just. It, it, it just. It, it's just wrong on multiple levels for me. I just can't get into it. I, I can't get into this storyline. For for it's it's and plus all these like a, a talking like a talking robot and I guess it's supposed to be funny. And then Kevin is here and he's still apologizing for reporting Harley Quinn into the cops way back when. Uh, and, and I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why this is dragging on so long. Like I, I don't, um, I, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why we're supposed to care. Is the if the, the universe isn't really at stake? You, how can you possibly say the multiverse is at stake when you're writing a Harley Quinn comic, especially when you don't treat the take the character seriously? She never and the character's not taken seriously here, at all. The character's just not taken seriously. And and if you're if anybody listening laughs at me and says, "Well, of course not. It's Harley Quinn." That's the problem right there. The moment a comic lacks verisimilitude, even if it's meant to be a parody, it's lost its it's lost its way in my mind, and I just feel that this uh, this uh, I just I this is just too it's goofy it's parody it's and and then not only that I'm, and I'm I'm just gonna skim over the backup and I'll be done talking about the whole issue. This this is like an anthology. Why does this issue? Why does this comic have a backup? I. You know, the one with the dinosaurs in the jungle, a backup by Hannah Rose May. You know, so we can get yet another off-the-wall, just crazy interpretation of Harley Quinn. This time she's a glorified Indiana Jones. Like, 
Like, there's just there's no consistency with this character, and this has become this is what Harley Quinn's become in the DC universe, and this is why she is. I used to put Wonder Woman as the consistently the worst written and the most uninteresting character in the DC universe. Tom King is at least making Wonder Woman interesting, and uh, and uh, so has uh, Josie Campbell with uh, Amazon's Attack. It's actually interesting again, but uh, this Harley Quinn is is consistently uh, just directionless all over the place, everything to everyone. And when you stand for everything and you can be written in, regardless of any consistent characterization, when people can write the character however the hell they want with no standard of continuity or consistency, then don't then the character loses all meaning. If you don't stand for anything, you don't stand for anything. And, uh, you know, that's, okay, sorry, that's my mini rant and that's all I got to say about the issue. I just want this to end. I want this to end. Uh, I think Harley Quinn needs a break. They should cancel Harley Quinn, take her off the board. Don't publish a Harley Quinn comic for at least another year to let people actually miss her again, if that's even possible. I want to be able to miss Harley Quinn. But as the saying goes, how can I miss you if you never leave? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not a fan of Harley Quinn regardless typically of the iteration of the character unless you're giving me you know the 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 super realistic harley like we got in the uh the cami garcia black label run yeah um criminal sanity uh yeah. to a lesser extent the, the sean gordon murphy verse it's worked for me on some level uh, but for the most part yeah i'm not a harley quinn fan so Whatever, I kind of throw my hands up. Is this goofy? Yes. Is it silly? Yes. <laughs> I really like the multiversal detective character. I think he's interesting. Uh, at least fans of, of, you know, Harley Quinn, Ivy, the one, the ones that, that put them together and, and love their relationship, at least they're getting, um, you know, something to kind of hang their hat on, uh, for lack of a better term. The fact that they they get uh, Harley and and Ivy as, um, you know, characters in a relationship here. So I think that, you know, there's something to be said about that, but, but yeah, overall, meh, I guess, like, it's not something that I really look forward to the dream stuff. I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't understand why they continue to put these backups in. They're just kind of silly and pointless in my mind. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you that they need to, Harley needs a reset, as it were. But, I mean, if you put Harley Quinn on the cover and you put it out, it sells, regardless of the iteration of Harley. So I don't see DC taking her off the table for any length of time yeah. uh, ever, honestly, at this point. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, Cyborg number six is the last book we're going to talk about. <clears throat> Again, there was some confusion on whether it came out last week or this week what have you. So I don't know, maybe some of you may have picked this up last week, uh, but we read it last week, didn't talk about it, but it written by Morgan Hampton, illustrated by Travis Mercer and Bruno Abdias, I think is how you say his name. Uh, colors by Michael Atea and letters by Rob Lee. So ultimately I really enjoyed this series. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought that it did a lot of the things that needed to be done with Cyborg, kind of getting away from some of the tropes of him. Some of the things as simple as just giving him some clothes, 
kind of the guy always walking around naked. I mean, I get it. You're robotic, but still, <laughs> um, there, you know, there's some thought about that. Um, some resolution with the problems that he's had with his father um, and just having a character that's a little more at peace with himself. I mean, I think there was a danger at one point for Cyborg to be sort of just, you know, the prototypical angry black man, uh, you know, written that way. Not so different from the way Luke Cage was written at times uh, for Marvel in the late 70s and early 80s. So I think, you know, on that level, this the series was really successful. Um, and uh, I thought the art was solid as well from, from Mercer. Uh, so I, I'm really impressed, especially considering this is Morgan Hampton's first kind of regular gig, you know, the first time he, he was on a monthly title. Um, the idea of, you know, AI and what it means to be human. Um, I mean, these are ideas that are not, you know, foreign to Cyborg if you will. I mean, these are ideas that we've, that you, you almost come to expect from a cyborg comic that these are uh, things that they're going to explore. So I, I, again, I thought that, that Hampton did a a really good job in, um, in bringing those to the fore and exploring them and rooting uh, cyborg in the, the, his hometown of Detroit. So again, nothing but compliments, um, for Morgan Hampton, I think the series was ultimately really, really successful. What were your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, I agree. I, I thought the art was fantastic too. I, it was really, really good. I thought that um, I, I like I like when the the subject of lethal force is always in the background, frankly, because it should be a subject that is addressed more by superheroes, and it's addressed here. Uh, and I'll be straight up. I actually agree with Solace. I, I think Solace. They should have let Solace kill Marcus. I, I think Marcus is a threat, and I think Cyborg made a mistake. I think they could have just stepped. Now, of course, I, I'm 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 realized that I'm saying something sacrilegious here. Of course, of course, Cyborg's going to stop Solace from killing Marcus, but Solace is in fact ha- has a stronger moral compass in many ways than Marcus, and he wants to. He says to Cyborg, "Look, Marcus is just. If you don't let me kill Marcus, and you kill me, Mar- all Marcus is going to do." Is going to create another one of me anyway that he can control, and that's and that's, that's right. He's exactly right. Uh, but I mean, uh, of course, Solace should realize that there's always another way, and Cyborg won't let that happen. And I really like that uh, Silas, or pardon me, uh, Cyborg's uh, father. Yeah, Silas yeah. Stone. Yeah. Not to be confused with Solace, uh, but the, the relationship between Cyborg and his father, how his father helps him defeat. Uh, solace and ultimately truly dies sacrifices his life and and his consciousness actually truly dies and it's it's probably about time because these because every cyborg story at the beginning of every uh, cyborg series uh, there's always some issues about cyborg's relationship with his father so it's probably about time that cyborg's father actually finally dies here and it's nice to see that hopefully this is a final death even though it is comics that remains final so that so that victor victor stone needs to be able to move on past the memory of his father because he's more complex than that 
and keep bringing up his relationship with his father. That's like it's kind of like beating a dead horse. It's not all that interesting, quite frankly. It's uh, although I will admit, if I see another pearl in a Batman comic uh, or with a Batman <laughs> with the pearls everywhere, that's the same thing, probably. So what am I? You know, why am I reading comics if that bothers me? I, I, one could say, but in any event, I liked I liked that there's some finality there and there's some emotions there and the fact that that there was that relationship with is that he can finally put some closure to it. And as somebody who has always made, I've always made fun of Victor Stone a little bit because, you know, there's always seems to be one, one kind of story. Well, this one actually had a story that had something to say. I actually felt some sympathy for the villain solace. I felt I, 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 I liked the villain Marcus. I liked, I liked the fact that, uh, cyborg was challenged here uh, i would have i would have liked to have seen a little bit more consideration of the use of lethal force i would have liked to have seen that maybe debated a little bit more but that's just me and probably out of character with victor stone because he's he's his compass is on pretty 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 tight uh, uh but in any event i thought it was a nice send-off for this series uh and hopefully uh, moving forward, uh, I'd like to see Victor Stone involved in different kinds of storylines moving into the future that finally don't involve his father. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so maybe because there are so many single issues this week, very light on the collections, only two. Uh, we've got Nightwing Volume 2, Get Grayson uh, trade paperback, which is the second trade paperback for the Tom Taylor run. Collects issues 87 through 91 and Superman Son of Kal-El number nine. And then for those that are so inclined, uh, and I'm a big fan of this property, Spy versus Spy has an omnibus hardcover. It's the 2023 edition, collecting a bunch of those fantastic Spy versus Spy comics from Mad Magazine back in the day. This thing is, let me see if it says, it doesn't say how many pages, uh, unfortunately, but... Um, Oh, sorry, 400 pages. 400 pages of spy by spy action. So if you're awesome. so inclined, uh, give that a look. So uh, moment of truth, Rocky, what are you going to give your book of the week to? Uh, boy, uh, let me see here. Uh, i got to find my, uh, my pick of the week. I don't even know if I – I may have lost my – oh, there it is. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. This is uh, this is kind of a tough one. Uh, let me see here. I figured uh, you were uh, for sure going with uh, Penguin. Well, yeah, I like Penguin, but uh, I don't know if I... Uh, Penguin was pretty good. I know it's definitely not The Flash... It's, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? I guess I, I guess I, you know, you're right. I, I will have to go with the penguin. I will go with the penguin. Yeah. I will have to go with the penguin because it was just, uh, yeah, it was good. I, I really like detective comics as well, but I'll go with the, the penguin. What about yourself? Yeah. I gave some consideration to the penguin. Uh, but I figured you would pick it. So I'm going with Action Comics uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, absolutely amazing, gorgeous art, uh, well-paced. But just as kind of a – this is the final time I'm going to get to pick a, a Philip Kennedy Johnson Action Comics 
book as my, my book of the week, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, at least he comes back to the title uh, at a later time, and his run's just been so fantastic. It's just such a satisfying ending to, uh, like I said, what I feel is the best uh, the best arc that he had on action during his time. On, yeah. on the you actually make me feel guilty saying that I, I should probably, uh, I should probably change my vote and say action as well. Cause it, uh, cause it is his final issue and, and he deserves it because I, it's rare that I've enjoyed a series of uh, two full Superman epic arts arcs, sorry, arcs like I've enjoyed his. So yeah, I got no problem uh, conceding that action comics beats out penguin. <laughs> All right. There you go, folks. Uh, those are our picks of the week. So don't forget, uh, if you're listening to us audio only, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. You can see his uh, picks for top DC books of the year and top 10 uh, most disappointing books uh, for DC. Uh, also, if you want to, you can head over to the Comic Source YouTube channel as well. If you want to look at our 12 Days of the Comic Source Presents Bad Idea, see the videos, see the artwork, see the amazing books. Maybe you've checked it out audio only. Uh, that's fine as well. We appreciate the support. We appreciate you all joining us. We had a lot of fun doing it and a lot of great feedback uh, from the community. Still haven't had a chance to decide if we're going to review the rest of the Bad Idea books uh, that we didn't get a chance to cover, but we'll let you know uh, if and when we have time to, uh, to get that done. But if you are checking us out on Rocky's YouTube channel, you're like, what? Comic Source Podcast? What? If you want to listen to our thousands of episodes of audio-only content, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe, and they're all available for you there. So uh, once again, wishing everybody happy holidays, happy new year. Uh, wish we could have got this out a little earlier for you. Uh, but again, I'm on the road, a lot of holiday stuff going on, relatives and what have you. So we appreciate your patience. We appreciate your support. We appreciate you joining us as always. And we will talk to you in the new year. Yes. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.